This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here. Your coach, your guide on the side. Welcome to the program. Happy Wednesday. Happy Wednesday to you. You know, that just doesn't have a great ring. But I guess when it's Wednesday. Happy middle of the week. It's it's happy post-Super Tuesday, too. We talked about this yesterday. No, it's they're not, calling it Super Tuesday, too. It can't be. Because <clears throat> the was. most important thing is next Tuesday. That would be Super Tuesday. Because everything they talked about last night was this is a preview of next week. So how can this be the next great thing when next week is you know the what? next great Donald thing? Donald felt pretty super about it. As he was pushing his stakes that don't exist. You know, that's an interesting thing. You may not have seen, like, Donald says, hey, don't make fun of my steak company. In fact, why don't you try some steak? He, he's a smart guy. He holds. He ends up holding basically a press conference. It was like a QVC episode. Yeah. But... It's really smart because let's say he loses this whole thing. He's, he will have sold thousands of steaks, Allegedly. tens of thousands of dollars of bottled water. And what was his other? He has a winery next it to his the winery. Jefferson Memorial. That's what he said. They're very proud of it. He owns it. You can check the documents on that. I, I own that winery next to the Jefferson Memorial. It was very odd to watch. It's it's a strange thing, but it's like, did you just win Michigan, or yeah. are you selling steaks? And he was doing both. <laughs> he was multitasking. Well, do you remember? Like, you probably don't remember, but back in the old days, they'd say this show brought to you by Mutual of Omaha, and they'd have like a really good pitch. Hmm. That I mean, they still do it, but it used to like be iconic part of the show. Now it's subtle, right? Now they just drive up in the Chevy car, you know, the whatever Ford truck or something, and then they stop and pause on the grill for about 10 seconds and then go on with the show. <laughs> yeah. Your Democracy brought to you by Trump Steaks. Trump Steaks. not that crazy? Uh, Donald, the Don, the Donster for the GOP takes Michigan. I came in like a and he took it and just thrashed about Hillary Clinton lost. In Michigan. That's amazing. The burn took Michigan. That, I'm sure, has put a startle in the Clinton candidacy. Because now Bernie Sanders could run the Rust Belt, everyone's saying. What if he wins the Rust Belt? That's next week, Super Tuesday 3. (laughs) (laughs) It's Super Tuesday 3 next week. And he could go take Ohio. Hmm. He could go take uh, Illinois. I mean, this is crazy. Well, I was watching, I can't remember who it was. Somebody last night was on one of the, you know, talking head channels. Uh-huh. And uh, he was saying, Bernie wins Michigan. This could go to June. Yeah. Right? They thought this could be over possibly next week. Soon after, this could go another several months. This is as, a big. As- Hillary, as Hillary Clinton can't quite get enough of the uh, delegates to put him out of the game. so um, It's crazy. Uh, Trump also won Mississippi, which, you know, Cruz was supposed to win. According to Cruz. Cruz was going to take the South. 
And then oddly, Cruz jumps the country and wins Idaho. Idaho. Hmm. Now I think I think Hawaii was in the race somewhere. There was a. They had a caucus. The others were primaries. That was a caucus, and that's where. Uh, do, we, do we know anything about those results, or is it just such a sleepy state way off in the Pacific that nobody knows? Let's turn into Ben, our Washington. I mean, our Hawaiian correspondent. Ben, what's so, going on uh, with the caucus in Hawaii? So I was there in 2012 for the Mitt Romney primary stuff. Okay, so that's he's a, not has he doesn't no, know anything. No bearing on today. Okay. Um, so there are so few Republicans in Hawaii that I heard there's like ten. Yeah, you you pretty much vote in Laie because there are a lot of Republicans there. Okay, but. okay. So any any anything any update on the current election or um, caucus? They could be about three or four weeks late. So okay. Okay. So just, the just results on. were in Trump won. Okay. Trump won Hawaii. Oh, he did. So uh, he did. Yes. I was just Man. waiting to see if he'd get to it. But, yeah, Trump won. Trump won. So Trump took- See, we have – even though it's Hawaii and you're trying to say it's all backwards, there is such things as technology and they have counted all the votes in They have Trump the won. interweb there? A form of it. It has pineapples <laughs> attached somehow. Oh, cool. This it's is huge. Powered by pineapple juice. Trump took three of the four uh, Super Tuesday 2 states. Wow. You're, just, you're just not going to let that go, are you? Nope. Okay. Next week, uh, Super Tuesday 3, Trump, uh, Florida's in the game. Ohio will be in the game. I don't know how much of a game they're going to be. Florida's an interesting race because Rubio pretty much has to win that or they say he's out. He probably should be out now. I think Trump made a comment that he heard Rubio's getting out. Of course, because he Which just is likes exactly to, what to spin the rumor did. and then right. it just turns into truth. Many are saying Kasich, because he came in third... A solid third. I think he came in second in Michigan. Yes. He's now the the establishment GOP candidate. Just take the hat off Rubio and put it on. Right. Kasich. But many are saying Rubio should jo- drop out. He should drop out. Kasich will become the target. He'll get beat down and we'll be left with the the Cruz Trump Maybe I, Maybe Kasich will have to go all the way to, um, to Cleveland to the convention because – Kasich would love to be the vice president. Yeah. Actually, nobody would love to be the vice president. I don't know. I mean, well, I mean, some would, probably Rubio, because he's going to be unemployed. I I find it interesting that anyone who ran against whoever actually wins the presidency would be an option for vice president. Since they sit there and just throw barbs and insults, essentially. Especially now where the Republican side has turned to insults. Mm Mm-hmm. And then so you're supposed to just brush that under the rug and work together for a better tomorrow or whatever. Yeah. And it just doesn't make sense. You, you'd think you'd pick someone who didn't even run. Well, yeah. To and, make, it'd make more and sense that And maybe that they way. will. You know, maybe they will. Except, you know, I think – I don't know that I'd want somebody that has wanted me dead well, it's like with, to be one – It's like with Chris Christie. Yeah. Like a week oh, yeah. before, he's talking about how Trump is the worst thing for this country. And then the next week, I think he's the best. It's like, what what, what are you doing? What, mm-hmm. what are we trying? And then it's just weird. And then he stands back there and looks like he's being held hostage. <laughs> and then he says he's not being held but hostage. Did you notice this this time on Super Tuesday 2? Super Tuesday 1 yeah. made a big deal because he looked like he was being held hostage. Yes. And so they actually kept him off the stage. But he was there because Donald kept saying, Chris is here somewhere. Where Where, are, where is Chris? <laughs> He's in the back rolling his eyes like, what am I doing? I've sold my soul. 
I've sold my soul. There was a, a, a story that in an interview, Chris Christie recounted how uh, he goes to dinner at one point with Trump at, of course, a Trump restaurant in did he, Trump did he, Tower. Did he have a Trump steak? Um, well, that was the thing was that Trump ordered for him. And really? he was like, and the, the reporter was like, really? And he goes, yeah. And he goes, how was that? And he goes, yeah, it was all right. Do you but know I'm gluten free? <laughs> But he's just, it was just kind of odd that two grown men sit down for dinner and then the one one of the men, who happens to own the building, he uh, orders would you, I for would Chris let, Christie. I will, he will. was just like, what are yeah. we doing? I, I would I, let I Donald order for me at his restaurant. Well, the thing was is the chef came out and was talking to Donald. Mm-hmm. We were talking back and forth because, you know, Donald owns the place. And he's like, you know that, that appetizer we made last week? Let's bring out two of those and uh, – we had that steak dinner. I like yeah. that one. Bring two of those. And Bring two of those. He looked over at Chris Christie and goes, don't worry. You'll love it. You'll it's love great. it. And some Trump nuggets. Give me some Trump nuggets. But Christie was acting like, why did he just order for me? That is kind of strange. That's kind of... Yeah. That's a power move. Yeah. We always talk about, like, you know, nonverbals, and you, that's a power move. That's a big power move. Wouldn't I mean, that look, be weird if, like... You can tell Chris Christie knows his way around a menu. Does he? <laughs> it may not be what you think. You're a monster. Maybe he's sorry. I couldn't help. Maybe he has plantar fasciitis. Could I had that for a while? Just a just a lot of athletes do. I remember when I took Ben to McDonald's and ordered for him. That was cool. Really? Happy you, meal. You like that though, didn't you, Ben? I I never go to McDonald's. So are you you, are you, you do your way a lot around a lot yeah. better than I did. Are you a one or two Happy Meal guy? Sometimes um, the Happy Meal just isn't he's enough. He's a fillet of fish. And now they're tossing apples in there, so it's like, what's the point? Yeah, I mean, why am I going to McDonald's to eat healthy, right? The what? You can eat healthy at McDonald's. Yeah, but you don't go there for an apple. I do. Apple slices. Four of them in a bag. It's a quarter of an apple, but it costs a buck. No, it costs about 60 cents. Most expensive apple on earth. But they don't age. Hey, uh, let's let's. I, I do want to hear. This is Trump uh, at his acceptance speech. This is probably his strongest policy statement to date. Donald Trump. Trump steaks. Where are the steaks? Do we have steaks? We have Trump steaks. He said the steak company, and we have Trump steaks. And by the way, if you want to take one, we'll charge you about what fifty bucks a steak. Now, ha ha ha. You're president. Then he went off on his Trump water and the Trump wine <laughs> and the winery next to the... And who could say he's not presidential? By the way, I can be more presidential than anybody. I can be more presidential if I want to be. I can be more presidential than anybody. You know, when I have 16 people coming at me from 16 different angles, uh, you don't want to be so presidential. You have to win. You have to beat them back, right? And But... I would say more presidential, and I've said this a couple of times, more presidential than anybody other than the great Abe Lincoln. He was very presidential, right? Um, I was confused because he said almost that exact same thing last Tuesday. Yeah. But but he was just repeating himself. No, so. don't say last Tuesday. It was last say Tuesday. Say Super Tuesday 1. Oh, excuse me. Super Tuesday 2, he said the exact same thing. He's more presidential than anybody except... Abe Lincoln. Abe Lincoln. Has, has he heard of George Washington? Has he heard of him? He didn't think he was very presidential. Wooden teeth. Eesh. I would love to see George talk to <laughs> Trump today and have one of his Trump sticks. Hey, um, but you know Trump can take on Hillary. If I win and if I get to go against Hillary, polls are showing that I beat her. 
And some of the polls have me beating her very easily because when you take advantage, we will take many, many people away from the Democrats and we'll take many, many people away that normally go Democrat as independents. And, that, and we're seeing that. Yeah. He's do not underestimate Donald Trump or his stakes. Sure. They're a bit grisly. But don't underestimate him. Remember, every, he was the laughing stock of the GOP. And now? He has stakes. Uh, yeah, of the 17, <laughs> we're down to four. If you, if you ask Trump, we're down to one. Yeah. And it's always been one. Yeah. I mean. He's very confident. The, the, it's amazing, though. He was a joke years ago. And now he could be the GOP nominee. <sighs> it's enough to make you snap, which is one of our topics today. Dr. Douglas Fields will be joining us. Uh, we saw it just witnessed the, the, the other day with Ben. Um, there's just a certain moment where you get overstimulated and your circuits blow. And the next thing you know, you're going crazy. You're going off on people. You're raging. I, I think it's pretty normal for it to happen twice a week for most people, right? Yeah. No, but yeah. I mean, for some people, yeah. Okay. Twice a week, uh, this rage, this this circuitry goes off. So we're going to be speaking with a neurobiologist, Dr. Douglas Fields, about his book, Why We Snap. And we're going to understand why good, decent, wonderful people just lose it and go off. So stick with us. Uh, it's, it's some pretty interesting research, and it's, you know— Anybody. It could happen to anybody. So we'll get to that in a minute. But first, let's uh, do a quick review of some of the headlines. Terry, what's going on? Thanks, Matt. As we've been talking about, Donald Trump takes the primaries in Michigan and Mississippi and wins the caucus in Hawaii. Ted Cruz with a win in Idaho. For the Democrats, Bernie Sanders with an unexpected win in Michigan. And Hillary Clinton wins 83% of the vote in Mississippi. A new CNN poll out today in Ohio, Trump with the lead at 41 percent, Ohio Governor John Kasich at 35, Ted Cruz at 15, Marco Rubio at 7. In Florida, Trump 40 percent, Rubio 24, Cruz 19, Kasich at 5. So that's important. That's yeah. next week. That could decide the Republican side. Super Tuesday, thir- the third. The third. All The all-important delegate count. Donald Trump 446, Ted Cruz now with 347. So Trump has almost 100 more delegates at this point. For the Democrats, Hillary with uh, Hillary Clinton with 759, Bernie Sanders 546. That's a little weird because it doesn't include the super delegates, which puts Hillary Clinton over almost 1200. Yeah, I so, mean by super delegate, Hillary, it's almost done. It's all already over. Yeah. Um, after interviews with dozens of Republican senators on Tuesday, there is still no one willing to publicly say they are on Ted Cruz's side. This, according to the New York Times. To date, Donald Trump and John Kasich both have the endorsements of current of a current senator. Marco Rubio has raked in the support of more than a dozen of his peers. Despite years in the Senate, Cruz is still looking at no support. Yesterday, the National Review reported that Cruz was set to unveil endorsements for more than four senators this week, only to issue an update saying the report was erroneous. As of this writing, the campaign has no pending Senate endorsements to announce. But his dad and Uncle Larry... Think he's fantastic. No one likes Ted Cruz. The man suspected of shooting an Idaho pastor was arrested Tuesday outside the White House after he threw unknown material over the fence line, according to the Secret Service. We talked about this last yeah. week. 
Uh, it was, actually, it was earlier this week. It was, I think it was on Monday. The pastor was shot in the parking lot of the uh, the, the uh, church where he uh, he serves. Kyle Odom mm. is the 30-year-old former Marine, was arrested in D.C. two days after allegedly shot Tim Remington outside Altar Church in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. Earlier on Tuesday, a message posted to Odom's Facebook page said that Remington was shot because the pastor was, quote, from Mars and had ruined ruined Odom's life. There was also some amphibious aliens that have lived here for years, mm. kind of memorandum thing. So, oh, uh, Odom's profile picture was also changed to the drawing of an alien. Coeur police say Monday Odom had a history of mental illness. Apparently, yeah. Which is showing up here. Attorney General Loretta Lynch has requested that the White House take her out of consideration for the open Supreme Court <laughs> justice seat, given the urgent issues before the Department of Justice. She has not to be considered for the position of spokesman said huh. um, also the i mean she did get get approved for that job yeah but she probably would be a never in. never get through congress really why would you think about it why would anybody ever pull themselves out of consideration that seems crazy yeah. it's such an incredible job yet she doesn't want to go near it right now it'll be a punching bag yeah <laughs> no thanks no. not good interesting stuff well folks we've got a uh a great uh, topic coming up and a great guest. Dr. Doug, uh, Douglas Fields will be joining us talking about why we snap, understanding the rage circuit in your brain. If you've ever just gone off, if you've lost it, uh, you, you got to listen up. This is the clash between our evolution and just our contemporary world. You know, when that one person just won't quit chomping on their gum and you can't take it anymore. Why we snap. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, we've all seen a story in the news somewhere where a seemingly stable, rational person commits an uncharacteristic act of violence. These episodes of rage often end tragically with a little explanation as to what caused the outburst. Our next guest uh, is Douglas, Dr. Douglas Fields. He is a neurobiologist whose recent book uh, is titled Why We Snap, Understand the rage circuit in your brain, and it explains the cause of these sudden outbursts of rage. rage. According to Dr. Fields, the violent behavior is the result of the clash between our evolutionary hardwiring and the triggers from our contemporary world. Joining us from Bethesda, Maryland, Dr. Uh, Douglas Fields. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show, Dr. Fields. Hi, Matt. Great to be on your show. Great to be on your – great to have you. I'm so excited. We had to postpone you the other day. Uh, from being on the show, but I had to have you on as soon as I could because this topic I see a lot. I mean, I guess there's different types of snapping, right? But I I see clients that fight with their partner and react and get very – and have very quick triggers. What is – what is going on? First of all, explain what snapping is and, and, uh, and why did you choose to study this of all things? Right. Well, for much the same reason uh, that you just mentioned, it's very intriguing, particularly uh, from a neuroscience perspective, because snapping is this sudden, impulsive, aggressive, or violent uh, reaction to something in the environment. But we don't call it snapping unless it's inappropriate to the Mm. situation. If it's appropriate, we call it uh, quick thinking or heroism, you know? Right. But if you look in the brain, it's the same circuit. And the thing that intrigued me about snapping is that it's not deliberate. It's not conscious. 
Um, and that's what leaves us feeling bewildered uh, after, you know, you wrap a golf club around a tree or smash <laughs> a dish and immediately regret it. And why did I do that? So that's what I under, wanted to understand. And those are two clues. The fact that it's very rapid and that it's not conscious are two clues to how it, this circuit works in the brain. And inappropriate. And inappropriate. Yes. Right. I mean, isn't that it's interesting because like you'll hear stories of heroism where someone will stop a mugger and they really were snapping, except we praise that. And then, right, like you said, somebody, you know, wraps a golf club or throws a club into the lake and we look at them like, man, Larry's out of control. Is right. it well, is it controllable? Well, it is controllable. Um, but in the, the first part to controlling it is to understand the circuitry. We don't have this circuit. We have this circuitry because we need it. It's life-saving, and we need it for the reasons that you alluded to. It really is part of the brain's threat detection mechanism. Um, but uh, it, it does get misfired, particularly in the modern world, because we have the same brain we had 100,000 years ago, right. but the world's entirely different. So that leads to misfiring. Um, but the important thing to understand is that we're all wired for violence. Hmm. Um, you know, we just heard about Kyle Odom, that the the person who who shot is suspected of shooting the pastor. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's an example of somebody who's apparently mentally ill. That's not what I'm talking about. When I read the papers every day, it's these you know domestic disputes, barroom brawls, uh, workplace shootings, people who are not mentally ill, and we just say they snapped. So that's what I'm what I'm interested in. We all have the capacity for violence. It's in a part of the brain that's not conscious. It's in what's called the hypothalamus, and this is deep in the brain, same part of the brain that controls sexual behavior mm. and, and feeding and thirst. So it's and very, yeah, it's, it's a very, it's, it's a base oh, yeah, drive. It's not verbal and it, if, or conscious, and if you stimulate neurons in this region with an electrode, the animal will instantly attack and kill another animal in the cage. This is called the hypothalamic attack area of the brain. So we all have this because we need it. We need violence to protect ourselves, to protect our offspring. Um, we're carnivores as a species, uh, and we don't need to be taught this behavior. But then the question becomes, what trips this circuit? And that's what's uh, very interesting, and that's the new, the new uh, research. Because if you think about it, no animal is going to engage in violence or a human being uh, lightly. Uh, engaging in violence is very risky. Mm -hmm. And although, as you said, it seems like almost anything can set somebody off you know, to snapping, that's not true. There are only very specific triggers. And in the book, Why We Snap, I identify nine of them that will cause this response. Um, and these are independent circuits in the brain. That's the new neuroscience. Wow. So, yeah, so that, that, that's the key, the key finding. If you can understand what these circuits are that will stimulate the attack area, and I described the new science that's traced these out, um, and you can identify, if you have a sudden rise in anger, whether one of these circuits is the reason for your anger, then you can diffuse it. Well, and this is what's so strange because uh, apparently some of these triggers – I mean it makes sense to attack if you're being attacked or if you're, so, if you're cornered, if you're threatened, if your child's being attacked or hurt. But to, we, I am assuming we could also snap just because um, our wife is questioning our loyalty. Um, you're right, but it's because of 
uh, a one trigger. Of these, one of these triggers that makes sense biologically. So yeah. You're too close to this as human beings. You have to step back and look at the brain the way I do. Yeah. Neuroscientists look at the circuits. And I'm, you know, I, I see the same circuits in animals that are in human brains, and there are only nine triggers. Um, but, but the trick is that you know, trying to identify them sometimes in the modern world is a little bit tricky, uh, for example, on road rage. But uh, if you can do that, two things will happen. You're driving down the road. Suddenly you feel this, uh, this overwhelming anger. If you can instantly say, is it one of these triggers? And I've given them a mnemonic, life morts, mm-hmm. which I can explain. To okay. People quickly identify it. If you identify that your anger is being provoked by one of these nine triggers, you'll know two things. You'll know that you're pressing on neural circuitry designed by evolution to release violence, potentially deadly violence. And that's why we see deadly violence erupt on the road. Um, And secondly, if you can, in that same instant, realize that this is being provoked inappropriately, it's really a misfire, then the anger will go away. Hmm. Because the anger, emotion of anger, is the result of your threat detection mechanism in your brain preparing you to fight. Now, you're you're kind of cognitively, I guess, overriding the hypothalamus by, by just by recognizing it, aren't you? Yes, well, exactly. We, th- this circuitry is under control of the, of the prefrontal cortex, um, mm. and so it can be controlled. And in Why We Snap, I interview a lot of people who have developed, uh, who work in threatening situations, race car drivers, SEAL Team 6, Secret Service agents, fascinating people, but also nonviolent people like the religious group Jains and Quakers, um, and they optimize and control this uh, threat detection circuitry in the brain. I'll give you an example. So if, you, if somebody bumps into you, you will instantly uh, respond aggressively, defensively. That's one of the triggers. You know, we call that self-defense trigger. In the, in the mnemonic, that's life or limb. You, will, you or any animal will engage in violence if you are uh, threatened, you know, attacked. But if that person bumps into you and immediately says, oh, excuse me, what happens? Yeah, diffuse. The goes away. So you can do that same thing to yourself. Um, in the same situations, if you can identify these triggers, and you know the anger management approach is, is helpful, I, you know, especially with chronic stress and whatnot. But often, when somebody's angry, <laughs> telling them to calm down doesn't help. It just right. makes it worse. And even telling yourself to calm down doesn't work. Much better to ask, "Why am I angry?" Interesting. Like, yeah, ask a question to. I, I guess that drives you to the prefrontal cortex. Yeah, because um, is it? I noticed just driving with my wife, she'll startle, like thinking a car is about to crush on top of us in a horrible accident, and um, and the minute she startles, it her startle startles me, and it I can just feel I'm immediately amped up, like wanting to attack. Right. Well. Again, this is the threat detection mechanism of the brain, and it's an amazing mechanism. So um, it's unconscious for the two reasons. Um, It has to happen fast. If it went to the conscious part of the brain, the cortex, that's too slow. Right. And also, you're taking in too much information as your wife is driving. Think about all the internal and external uh, situational information that her body is taking in through all her senses. All of that sensory information goes to this part of the brain. The, the amygdala, before it goes to your conscious mind. Mm-hmm. So our brain is always on the lookout for threats. Now, what you described is a situation where you start to feel under stress. Yeah. What that is, is your brain's threat detection mechanism taking in all this information that would overwhelm your conscious mind, concluding you're in danger. 
And the only way it can communicate that to your cerebral cortex, to your consciousness, is through this nonverbal emotion, which we call chronic stress. Mm. But we have all kinds of emotions that are the result of our threat detection mechanism trying to communicate, and it's the way it communicates to the conscious brain. You know, fear means you're in immediate danger. Yeah. Um, you know, jealousy, uh, anger, these are all different emotions um, that your threat detection mechanism of your brain is using to convey the threat to your conscious brain. But the final point I didn't get to is that when you're in a threatening situation, you put all of these triggers on high alert. And so they're more likely to misfire. And that's what happens on the freeway or in any kind of stressful, chronic stressful situation. That makes sense. If you're in a threatening environment, you want to have your threat detection mechanism on high alert. Yeah. So, but it really, then you're, then you are amped and more likely to, to make a, a triggering mistake. Exactly. We we don't want to we don't want to inhibit the the good snapping. We want to inhibit the misfiring. But you know, if it's on a hair trigger, like any burglar alarm or any you know even you know firearm that's <laughs> with the safety off, it's more likely to misfire. Mm. So so you know a lot of chronic stress. We know we're on chronic stress. You and I both know what that feels yeah. like. Um, and you may not be able to control it. There may be life events, you know, death in the family or financial situations, um, and you can't really control it. But if you can be aware that listen to your, your, your uh, threat detection mechanism, you're under chronic stress, you need to be very careful uh, and that you're going to trip one of these triggers uh, inappropriately. Mm. No, and it totally makes sense. I mean, if you're underslept, if you're if you're working crazy hours trying to make something happen, the the odds go up, you know, incredibly higher to that you're going to have a, a misfire. Uh, let's take a break. We're speaking with Doctor Douglas Fields, who is the author of Why We Snap: Understand the Rage Circuit in Your Brain. Excellent insight, isn't it, into what um, what really is going on in your mind, your brain? I mean, you can rationalize it all you want, uh, but there are ways to kind of take this on. It sounds like there's nine triggers. We'll come back and talk about some of the triggers. Also want to find out if uh, if there's any direction based on, you know, uh, based on gender. Men more likely to snap than women and why. We'll get into that as well. Plus, uh, I want to hear the story behind the story. Dr. Douglas Fields has an interesting reason for why he even, why where he has experienced this snap. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Have you ever just snapped? Every day. Ben is like taking copious notes on today's guest. Uh, ben also just reminded me his favorite uh, member of the Rice Krispie Trio, Snap, Crackle, and Pop. Snap. I relate to him the most. <laughs> He's got that quick trigger. Joining us is Dr. Douglas Fields. He is the author of the book, Why We Snap, Understand the Rage Circuit in Your Brain. He's a neuroscientist uh, and a respected one and a senior investigator at the National Institutes of Health. He's not just talking about, you know, when somebody has a mental health breakdown, like we hear in the news so many times, and then they go on some shooting spree. He's talking about when your brain 
goes off and has an immediate kind of reactive response to an event, and um, especially an inappropriate response. If it were appropriate, we'd call it heroism. We'd call it, what a stud. But when, you know, when it turns kind of ugly, it's, it's, a, it's snap. It's a, it's a moment when we, I guess we're hijacked is what I call it by our brain. Dr. Douglas Fields, welcome back to the show. Thank you. I love, I mean, I do with my clients, I call it being hijacked. And, um, but this is more than just, this is a chemical reaction is really what you're having, right? Well, it's neurocircuitry. And, yeah. And, and, and I understand what you mean by hijack, but this is going on constantly. This is the circuit that protects you. You know, if a, if a basketball comes flying at your face and you dodge, uh, take aggressive action before ever, um, you know, even consciously uh, knowing that that you're in danger. Yeah. This is the same circuitry. So I understand what you mean by hijack, but but, but it's, it's every it, day. It's every day, but it does misfire, and particularly so in the modern world. And the misfiring. I mean, I guess part of it is there's just too many there's too many things operating on us today than a hundred thousand years ago. I mean, a hundred thousand years ago, this was used to make sure that the tiger or whatever didn't eat us, the saber-toothed, whatever, tiger didn't eat us. But now it's it's not about the tiger. It's about the car that almost hit me. It's about another red light. Are you kidding me? Right. It's about all of these things. Right. So wow. that, get, that gets into the, to the nine triggers that yeah. we have wired into our brain. Let's go into some of those. All right. So um, that, uh, there won't be time to do it in detail, but to give your listeners the, the idea, for example, we all know the mama bear response yeah. between a mother and her, her uh, child, threaten the child. There's no conscious thought involved. It's all out aggression to protect her child. That's hardwired in the brain, in this uh, same region of the brain. It's a parent. It doesn't have to be a, a mother. Mm-hmm. Um, in animals, we can see that circuit activated. Put a, uh, uh, when a mother's a rat's pup is being uh, threatened, we, can then, we know exactly which circuit it is. We can then knock that circuit out, and the mother will no longer protect her pups, but she still will have these rapid defensive aggressive responses to other triggers. For mm. example, the self-defense one I mentioned. So in order to uh, recognize these circuits. I don't use the scientific jargon. I've given this mnemonic so that to help you remember them. Yeah. Life, life mort. So L is life or limb. That's if you're attacked, you will fight. I is insult. I'll go quickly through and then yeah. we'll come back. F is family. That's the mother uh, bear response. E is environment. Um, basically, territorial animals will re- resort to violence to protect their territory. Humans are fiercely territorial. You know, uh, trespassers will be shot. Somebody coming yeah. home, you know, you, you, if you have to, you'll physically get rid of them. That's the E, environment trigger. M is mate. Um, aggression is used in acquiring and uh, maintaining mates in mammals and primates. Uh, o is order in society. Um, it's, and it's remarkable. All these triggers are double-edged sword because you just mentioned one. Say somebody runs uh, a stop sign. We're angry. Yeah. And it's because this person has violated the order, uh, the rules of society. So we're social animals. If you, your success, your survival depends on being part of the society. Right. And all social animals use violence to maintain the structure of society, and so do we. We use police now to mete out that violence. But it's so remarkable that you will get angry when somebody uh, doesn't follow the orders, uh, the, the rules. And that's what happened to Bernie, right? Right. It, uh, when... When uh, in the debate, uh, Hillary starts speaking out of term. So mm. 
that, that oh that's that interesting yeah because he went off yeah. but i mean he didn't like go crazy but there was no. this moment that almost seemed inappropriate no but he was angry for bernie and, right anger is to prepare you to fight so you have to look back and then why are you angry the same reason in road rage when somebody starts to cut into the lane when you're merging why do you mm-hmm. get angry you get angry because the person is violating the rules, and at one time you would have to deal with that physically yourself. R is resources. We'll engage in uh, aggression you know, to protect our resources, just like a family pet will if you get near his food dish at the mm-hmm. time. T is tribe. Um, we are uh, we are tribal animals. We uh, you know when we evolved in the plains of Africa, when we encountered another group, that was a dangerous threat to our resources and survival. This is, of course, the basis for uh, you know gangs and, and wars, and um, but it's also what allows us to work together cohesively as a mm. society, and, and and it's remarkable that well, we can go you know shirts and skins, yeah, and and just in the most elite and high rapid <laughs> endeavor operate as teams. And well, and sports one, rivalries, right? I mean, yeah. all of a sudden we're mad because so and so won the game. Yeah. Yeah. So again, it's a double-edged sword. Uh, you, you can't have one without the other. The last one is S for stopped. Um, any animal that's restrained will uh, respond aggressively, you know, chew his paw off to get out of a trap. I mean, Aaron Ralston, the backpacker, did that, you know, and it was life-saving, cut off his own arm. Mm-hmm. So that explains in traffic why, you know, you're suddenly um, everything stops, as you said. Well, why are you angry? I know. Humans have a range of emotions. Wow. Why, why aren't you sleepy or bored? Yeah. Why, are you, why are you ready to go track down and kill, you know, kill yeah. a fight? Some people do. Isn't that interesting? Because every it's one because of those makes trigger. sense. I mean, that list of – these are all just triggers, right? So They're all triggers. They're, but they, they're not from a point, perspective of behavior. They're from a perspective of brain circuitry. Mm. And that's the example. If you can see that, okay, I understand I'm angry because traffic stopped and – you know, this S trigger in my brain knows about being grabbed by the ankles, but, you know, uh, driving a car is 100,000 years ahead of this circuitry. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's a misfire, and you go, well, of course, you know, getting in a fight's actually not going to do anything or actually make it worse. The anger goes away. And um, so th- this is really interesting because as a behaviorist almost, that this is how I, I would look at this all behaviorally. And you're, but you're saying this, our brain's have circuitry wired to protect us with these nine types of triggers that would create more of an automatic response. Right. This is a different perspective. Yeah. It's no, a, brilliant. The psychology is great, but there's a rich literature totally. on that. This is a totally different perspective from new methods to trace out these circuits in the brain and see that, you know, that we have them, and most of the time they work great, but sometimes they misfire. Well, and again, I guess this is, this is, this is it would be the evolution, right? So we've evolved this kind of security net to protect us, how on earth do I use other parts of my evolution, like the prefrontal cortex, uh, to, to kind of circumvent the trigger? Well, uh, I talk about that in the book. It is part of the mechanism. You can inhibit this response, and, of course, drugs and alcohol interfere with this. Teenagers don't have the prefrontal cortex developed, so that's why uh, it's, it's very uh, difficult for them to control this, and I think more helpful for them to understand why they're angry in the situation. So, mm. you know, I, I interview SEAL Team 6 members. They talk about how they developed this and also the genes, the, the ability to control this. And it works both ways. You can have unconscious, you can have this, you know, top-down and bottom-up control of this threat detection circuitry, uh, which I explain. Man, is it um, is it something that 
do men have this like are they wired differently are they wired with just a stronger response kind of a more a stronger fight or flight or is it what is it that would make more men be in prison than women yeah Yeah, great question great um you know the most important factor in aggression human aggression um, mammalian aggression is sex um 90 percent of all the prisoners uh in prison for violent crimes are men Hmm. um or and but at the same time, 90% of all the awards for heroism given by the Carnegie Foundation are given to men. Uh, and a quarter of those were given to men who sacrificed their life in an instant uh, for a stranger. And they always say, you know, the ones who survive afterwards say, I don't know, I didn't think, I just reacted. One of these triggers was tripped. Um, and they so men, men men do respond differently. There are a lot of fascinating differences uh, between aggression between men and women, and between the brain circuits that are different in men and women. And it again goes down to evolution. It makes no sense for for uh, a woman to get in a physical fight with a with a, a guy who weighs 100 pounds more than she right. does. So women don't do that. They engage in indirect aggression, gossip, ganging up, uh, sabotage, poisoning, those kind of things. Um, mm-hmm. But also, the sad fact is, you and I wandering around the streets at night don't worry about being sexually assaulted. And, you know, the horribly sad fact is no woman can ever not have that in the back of her mind. Right. Um, And so this kind of different threat that affects women has changed their threat detection mechanisms and makes uh, women's threat detection mechanisms different in some respects from men. So research shows brainwave recording and functional brain imaging shows that women are much better, much faster at divining intentions and threats from facial expressions. Mm. Um, and uh, another example is that in times of uh, stress, women use the left hemisphere and men use the right hemisphere. Now, uh, in normal situations, we're switching back and forth between the left and the right because right. the right hemisphere is building up this big picture, synthesis, the left is breaking it down and looking at all the details. Um, but in times of stress, the sexes cleave so that the females look at all the details and the males look at the grand picture. And I saw this in my own, in my own case uh, when, when I was uh, robbed in Barcelona with my daughter. And uh, we were being pursued by this gang. And it was just so obvious that, that Kelly uh, could spot these uh, gang members quickly, much before I could. And mm. I'm thinking about big strategies. What am I going to do when I encounter them? You know? And she's, she's down there in, uh, in the weeds picking these guys out before they're on us. Wow. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? I, I see it when we get into relationships. Uh, the research shows that about 70% of the time women are more inclined to pursue the conversation and men tend to withdraw from the conversation. And I wonder, 70% of the time, and I wonder if it's not because... Um, of these triggers. Well, yeah. Like they want to avoid the trigger. They know a trigger is going to get fired. Well, again, you know, our brain is a product of the course of um, survival of the fittest over the last 100,000 years, and the traditional roles of men and women are quite different over that period and have given very different sorts of threats. Of course, today we live in a very different world, but nonetheless, uh, we have this same circuitry. So, yes, men uh, and women are very different. This this, this idea of uh, the, the explanation for women looking at details in a threatening situation is not really understood, but one thought is that in general, in, in uh, mating, uh, 
males audition and females make the decisions. So you mm. think of you know birds with uh, wild plumages and and dances. The females are making critical mate selection decisions based on real subtle differences in plumage and that kind of thing. And so you know, uh, same thing probably goes on today. You know, but before. Before she gives you your phone number, she's already wondering, you know, are you going to take out the garbage? Or am I going to be picking up on this guy? Yeah. You know? Is he going to talk to me? Yeah. No, it's yeah. true, huh? And the guy's thinking big picture things. Right. Interesting. Well, we appreciate it. This is such great insight. Um, again, the book is called uh, Why We Snap, Understand the Rage Circuit in Your Brain. And uh, Dr. Douglas Fields, thank you so much for being with us and teaching us all of these, uh, these incredible just new new tools for us. Thanks, Matt. I have to add a dis- disclaimer because yeah, you mentioned that I work at the NIH and I do run a lab here. But, of course, this book is not no, uh, not, not connected to the government. NIH. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah. And, uh, you, well, you, yeah. Man, many would say, thank heavens, Doug. <laughs> Appreciate <laughs> I have, that. I have no comment. I know. I know. Good stuff. Uh, he, he does run a lab there, folks. And really a, a renowned uh, uh, neurobiologist. So honored to have him on the show. Again, go check out the book, Why We Snap. Man, interesting, isn't it? What we are learning about ourselves and our own, um, our own, you know, hidden strengths, hidden, I guess, triggers. We'll take a break, folks. We'll come back, wrap up this first hour of the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Man, isn't that interesting? How many times have you just lost it? And it doesn't matter. It could be, you know, mom's making cookies with the kids. And one kid throws flour everywhere. The alarms go off in her head. And it it creates that trigger. That simple trigger of, you know, that's not the way we do it. Order in society. Sorry, hon, we don't do it that way. So you're going to need to go to timeout. We might need to take this into account with our tasing company. I know. We might need to, like, do background checks before we sit. Well, no, because... Mm-hmm. I'm worried that the tase... This might totally throw our tasing company out of the... Because you don't want people triggered and then tasing people. Or do you? Might be fun. Let's make yeah. it into a game. Let's see if we can hit one of your triggers. Yeah, we could make like a reality show. (laughs) That's horrible. Horrible. Uh, Anyway, folks, this is your body, right? This is your brain. 100,000 years, you're not going to change kind of the evolutionary side unless you engage the prefrontal cortex by asking questions. So make sure you take some time. If you lost it, if you lost your cool, I mean, it would be great to catch it in the midst of the, you know, in the snap. But if you didn't, at least go back and look at some of the times that you've blown up and ask yourself, why, why did I go off? What was my trigger? And actually try to figure out why it happened, how it happened. Think it through. With my clients, we then create a protocol, like a, just some rules for what I will do next time I start to feel that trigger go off. If you could just get good at recognizing what your triggers tend to be in certain situations and what they feel like, then all of a sudden – you might be starting to control this to the degree that you can control it. Again, if a Navy SEAL can control their reactions in the field, then 
then we can work on it in our relationships, in our life, with our family, to have healthier, happier lives. Remember, that's the goal of the show, to help you live longer, love stronger. We'll take a break. We'll come back. Whole new hour. Next hour, folks. Stick with us. You're listening to The Matt Townsend Show right here on BYU Radio. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your life coach, your guide on the side. Everybody needs a life coach. I've got six. In fact, I'm talking to my coach today. Your coach? Who's that? I have a life. I have a life coach. Who is it? Uh, I can't. I'm not going to name names. I'm actually oh. going to have her on the show. I'll name names. Really? Diana Kokoska. She's incredible. She's she's raised me since a pup. <laughs> She really is incredible, and uh, but she just holds me accountable. She's like, why do you keep beating up on that poor little Ben dude? He's mm. got no chance in life. Why do you do that? His prospects Hold are on. few, and you're just driving him further into the ground. She's like, why do you beat up on that poor little pitiful boy? Why yeah. do you do that? I want to talk to this woman. <laughs> <laughs> She's trying to defend you, Ben. She listens to the show, though. Today, we got a call. You just call her on the phone and mm-hmm. talk, talk for a while? Mm-hmm. Talk for a half hour. Hmm. And she holds me accountable. And I hold her accountable. We're kind of, we coach each other. Pure coaching. Yeah. But it's like. It's a new a new area of coaching. But like, she, yeah, she's she's a big deal. She's the head of a huge coaching organization that coaches thousands, tens of thousands of people. Anyway. Do I need a coach? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you do. Hey. You do. Sorry to have that reaction, but yeah. Wow. Hey, Terry, that's better than being too pitiful to ever need a coach. So <laughs> I guess. Is he still talking? I guess. I don't know. He's we love just... Ben. Ben needs a coach. Uh, ben, I'm your coach. I'm he, your guide on the side. He has a whole office full of coaches. Did you notice that? He walks out there, asks, what should I do? And like six women stand ben, up and talk I, to him. Ben, can I, help you co- can I help you coach? Yeah, I mean, I wrote a scholarship essay yesterday and like, Three girls came over I and know. helped me. It was I awesome. walked over there, and he was telling this pity story that wasn't even true about how, you know, we always make – not make fun of him. He didn't say that. But just that we always talk about how he wears pajamas and yeah. takes his shirt off and stuff. We tell the truth. But the girls, they all gathered around like, oh, I love it. You're incredible. I'd give you a scholarship. Yeah. It's just – that's when I walked away. I'm like, this is weird. I know. I'm like, you're not even on the scholarship committee. What, what scholarship would you give him? I'm like, I'll let someone else make the HR call. Mm-hmm. See, when you make the call to HR, mm-hmm. then they want to talk to you about it. I never make a call to HR. They always call me. They can called make, me twice yesterday. Can you make an ben. anonymous phone call to HR so they don't know who you are? Mm-hmm. I do it from Ben's phone. I go, I make it's, a call from Ben's It's phone. one thing to, to report the incident. It's another thing where four weeks down the road, we're going to have a meeting. Can you come down here? Mm-hmm. No, I'm not coming in there. Can you bring your VCR so we can show some videos that Ben did, their security videos? Yeah. So that's why I just don't want to be involved. I know. Me too. I'm sick of it. Speaking of coaching, today, uh, have you ever noticed some, some advice you get, it's just not good advice. Some advice is just bad advice. That happens. It just happens. So Professor Jason Dana will be joining us. He's a professor 
uh, assistant professor of management and marketing at Yale University. He's going to talk about, you know, why sometimes we think it's good advice really turns out to be bad advice and, and how to maybe discern between the advice you're getting. I suggest you listen to it, Ben. So I, I don't listen to everything you guys tell me. Why do we ask? Why do we, why do we try? One rule I try to go by with advice, if it's financial advice mm-hmm. and the person has no standing. Mm-hmm. They're not like Donald. Yeah. Uh, I usually dismiss it. Do you really? Yeah. So if a person has filed like five bankruptcies, mm-hmm. started 17 companies, yes. one of them, let's just say Trump stakes. Trump stakes. Yeah. Would you take his advice? No. If they really truly were a billionaire, though, well, one, you he, would. He's dealing with a different type of mm-hmm. money, mm-hmm. money that I will never understand. Cash? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, his yeah. his whole ideas and stuff are, it's are a different game. beyond no, totally. anything I'm going to deal with when I'm looking at my finances. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I try to find someone who I, I have a guy I know. I trust him. Right. He, he's helped me out with several things so far. And so it, he's a person That's I would it. go to for some advice or ask him, is there somebody else? Yeah. It's because you have to find somebody that's like you, you know, that has the same type of mindset as you. I mean, I, when people are like, just don't spend money. Well, sure. But it's the same idea you're talking about with a coach. Right. You try to find someone gotta, yeah. who kind of understands your situation, someone who the advice, you have to like it at some no, point right. level. Yeah. I mean, granted, they're trying to push you and kind of change you, mm-hmm. but you have to kind of see the vision and understand why that's, that could be important. Yeah. It's advice. Uh, how so, to choose between good and bad advice. You got to listen up. This is a great segment. And there is bad advice. There's people oh, that call up and they say, sorry. hey, um, I'm selling cell phones and I have this great model that you right. – let me get it out of my car. Mm-hmm. You're like, what? what? Yeah. Where did that come from? Anybody that opens up the back of their car, the trunk, the boot, anybody that opens that up to give you something that you're going to purchase right there on the street. Or if the same person wants to do the cell phone – Mm-hmm. Air quotes sale, yeah, and refinance your house. That's true. May want to may have watch caution. out for that. Yeah, if you're going to finance your phone for like nine years, I had a guy do that for me. Did he really? Nice. He came in. He goes, "We have great cell phone plans, long distance plans, mm-hmm. and I also refinance houses." Mm-hmm. Like, what? What? What was that? And he what goes back, it? and I went, "How do you do both of those?" And he goes, you, "I just multitask." Did yeah. you know though? This is so. I just bought a car. You can buy a car. You can lease a car. Yes. Or you can buy the car, and you can buy the car. Do you want to buy that car for 72 months, 60 months, 72 months, 86 months? Or would you like to just pay for it for the rest of your life? Yeah. I'm like, I'm a lifer, dude. <laughs> just hook me up. You can, I guess, forever now. Well, partially because the car is the same price as the house, first house I bought. <sighs> Oof. It's also just as portable. Yeah. Now, you can do the 72-month, but you may want to have plans to pay off that early. Exactly. I saw a report the that's other it. day. That's another $8,000 in interest. Yeah, pay it off fast. So if you if mm-hmm. you double up payments, right. see, when you do that, it'll extend it out, lower right. your payment. But if you double up, that's why you I, get it over faster. That's one reason I've decided with that meeting we're having with Ben that we're mm-hmm. going we're gonna to just cut his pay just a bit, just 30, yeah. 30%. Yeah, it'll be fine. You, you'll be okay, Ben. Wait, but, how did that relate to anything? Well, that will relate to my car payment. Um, So coming up, uh, we're going to be talking with Jason Dana. And uh, 
and replay an interview that we did about good advice, bad advice. You got to listen to it. The guy's from Yale, for heaven's sakes. He's from Yale. They got great advice at Yale University. So, uh, but first, let's get to the headlines. What's going on, Terry, around the rest of the world? Thanks, Matt. Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders won the big prize state of Michigan Tuesday night, dealing a blow to Democratic frontrunner Hillary Clinton. He said, I want to take this opportunity to thank the people of Michigan for kind of repudiating the polls that had us down 20 to 25 points. A couple of days ago, he said, calling Tuesday an enormously successful night. He predicted that there are better days ahead. And what tonight means is that the Bernie Sanders campaign, the political revolution that we are talking about, is strong in every part of the country. And frankly, we believe that our strongest areas are yet to happen. We're going to do very, very well in the West Coast and other parts of this country. He uh, impromptu press conference on a sidewalk in Florida as uh, he was not expected to, to win Michigan. So he didn't have some big celebration plans. So. Yeah, that is that really is a shocker. And I'm sure the Clinton campaign not happy. No, they they should have they should have won Michigan. And now it gives this storyline. But what he says, Sanders noted that whether we the uh, at the point when he said this, it, they, it was undecided. But he said whether we win or lose tonight. They won Michigan. He says, basically, the delegates will be split up because of proportional representation. So the delegates went almost 50-50. Right. Not the point. But yeah. The, right? Because the rest Well, he, he was trying to you yeah. know, tame the, right. the expectations. He goes, it was a split, but it's it's big because he wasn't supposed to even be in the race. Uh-huh. Yeah, everyone kept saying, it's time. He's done. He's done. But no. He's got legs. So to recap, the Democrats, Bernie Sanders wins Michigan, Hillary Clinton 83% of the vote in Mississippi. Donald Trump takes primaries in Michigan and Mississippi and wins the caucus in Hawaii. Ted Cruz with a win in Idaho. Hmm. Marco Rubio, well, tough night for him. Third, 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 fourth. Yes. Many say he's now... At one point, he was behind Ben Carson in some of the polling. Wow. Yeah, that changed because obviously Ben Carson's not running, <laughs> but... <laughs> Yay! Yeah, makes that interesting. Uh, an American was killed in a stabbing attack Tuesday evening in Israel. Mm. He has been identified as 29-year-old Taylor Force, a graduate student at Vanderbilt University. Force's wife was also severely injured in the same stabbing spree, which left nearly a dozen others injured in Jaffa, Israel. The terrorist assailant has also been identified as 22-year-old Palestinian Bashar Malha- hmm? Masalahana. I kind of went into that for some reason. Yeah, uh, he was shot dead by police. There's video of him just going down a line of cars, stabbing people as he went by their cars. Oh, my heavens. And uh, just just crazy. They've had attacks where um, Israeli Israeli citizens attacking Palestinians, Palestinians attacking Israel. Yesterday, uh, a uh, Palestinian stabbed a Orthodox Jew in the neck. Oh, wow. And that guy ended up taking the knife out of his neck and killing the guy, killing the terrorist with the knife. So some just crazy stories oh coming out heavens. of there. And, and all this is going on, and we're trying to have a arms deal, I guess, with Israel and Netanyahu's not meeting with Obama. Right. Joe Biden's actually in Israel right now having some uh, meetings over there. So lots of, uh, lots of issues going on in that region. Uh, the iconic Beatles producer, Sir George Martin, has died. A Universal Music Group spokesman confirmed to The Hollywood Reporter he was 90 years old. Ringo Starr first shared the news on Twitter. Martin, mm. who was dubbed the fifth Beatle, gave the band their first recording contract, worked with them on almost all of their music. Martin has won several Grammy Awards, was knighted in 1996. In a lengthy statement on his website, Paul McCartney, 
Paul McCartney hailed Martin as the most generous, intelligent, and musical person I have ever had the pleasure to know. Wow. Like, would there have been a Beatles without a Martin? Some say no. Some say no. It's interesting. Some of the photos you see of him, I guess he's in the recording studio. It looks like he's trying to launch a rocket with the equipment that's there. <laughs> so old. <laughs> Levers and switches and all kinds of stuff. But he's, Houston. That's how we they used to record music. Oh, that is funny. Whereas now it's all just in a computer. Look, listen to these songs. I mean, he sat in there, produced these songs. This is cool. I mean, and nobody, a lot of people may not have even known who he was, but. Right. Somebody. Somebody big. We'll uh, take a break, folks. When we come back, we're going to get into this uh, this great interview with Jason Dana about why good advice is often bad and uh, what advice to trust, you know? It's probably important as you live in a world where advice is constantly being thrown around. We're going to teach you how to sort through it all. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, many of us have been uh, put in situations where we are expected to give advice to another person. For many of us, this task can sometimes prove to be more complicated than it seems. You don't want to say the wrong thing for fear of advising someone to do something wrong. And, uh, and yet sometimes your advice may not be as accurate as it needs to be. The quest for distinguishing between good and bad advice can sometimes be overwhelming. Professor Jason Dana, Assistant Professor of Management and Marketing at Yale University, uh, sat down with us. We did an interview with him um, back in January about how to sort through advice, and and we, we learned a lot from him. We started the interview with this. I basically said, you know, not all advice is neutral. Many times it's biased. Yeah, it's, it's hard to give neutral advice, and, and particularly what we've been looking at lately and what we wrote the article about was uh, why advice differs from choice. And by that I mean why people do one thing for themselves, but then recommend something different when they advise someone else. Interesting. And yeah. what are you finding about that? Why, what are you, why would somebody give advice one way but do something another way? Uh, well, we, we have a number of reasons why this is the, the case. Um, you know, maybe be better to start off, or, or good to start off with a kind of a concrete example yeah. that we encountered. Uh, so, uh, a couple years back, some colleagues and I uh, surveyed some obstetricians and gynecologists that are in the American College of Gynecologists, and and since a lot of OBGYNs are uh, female, we were able to ask them how they advise their patients regarding mammography. But we were also able to ask them about their personal practices mm. regarding mammography. And what we found is that they were telling their patients to get mammograms earlier and more often than they themselves were getting them. Interesting. So, so that, yeah, I, I thought that was interesting. I mean, as someone who studies uh, ethics, it, it interests me because I think most people embrace a principle that's sort of like the golden rule. Right. right? You should do to other people what you, what, as you'd want them to do to you. But when it comes to advice, uh, people are doing one thing and telling people to do something else. So, you know, we have limited uh, ability to follow up with some of these physicians. It's hard to get physician time. But, you know, you think about all the reasons why that might be. Yeah, why like, are they giving? Why are they? Why, why, would, I, why would I give advice um, that is kind of the higher standard than I'm living 
I guess, is it me trying to protect them? Uh, to some degree, right? So, so look, we could say cynically, you might think that in the, in the case of physicians, for instance, that maybe they're just practicing defensive medicine, right? They, don't, they want to prevent lawsuits. Or if you wanted to be even more cynical, uh, perhaps you think you know, maybe they're getting compensated for referrals. But let's suppose that, that most physicians are indeed well-intentioned, right? That, right? And in fact, what they want to do is help you and they're just trying to give the best advice they can. Well, there's a lot of less sinister possibilities of why people would, would advise you differently than they choose for themselves. So, you know, maybe, maybe the advice in this case is good, but they're just procrastinating it on following it themselves. You know, so there's that old expression, the cobbler's children go shoeless. Right, exactly. So, so maybe they should be, the, the physicians should be getting them earlier, and they just aren't. Uh, it's also possible that, you know, maybe they strategically exaggerate their advice. So maybe they expect that patients will be a little bit slow to take up their advice. So they push it a little bit earlier and a little bit harder to make sure that it's followed up. Hmm. But what we're finding across a lot of domains, not just medicine, but all, all domains of advice, is that beyond all these factors, people just have a basic psychological tendency to be more cautious for others than they are for themselves. If you want, you could call that a, a paternalistic bias. Hmm. More cautious for others than we are for ourselves. So the financial advisor might be more cautious with someone else's money than with their own. Indeed. Correct. Interesting. Now, is that just good psychology or is that maybe that's good business? Maybe that's how they stay in business is being more cautious with everyone else's money. Yeah, it's both, right? Yeah. Uh, so, so it's interesting. Um, you know, one of the reasons that advice is more cautious than personal choice is indeed this worry about maintaining a relationship or being held accountable for your advice. So it's funny, you know, because we think that advisors ideally should be held accountable for right. the advice that they give right. or that we should want to take advice from someone that we like or that we trust. And this is kind of counterintuitive and perverse, but that can lead to problems. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a, really, because there's a, you know, so there's a general psychological principle that bad has a stronger impact than good. And this is true, especially in impressions of other people. So, you know, you can expect to be blamed more for bad outcomes that might flow from your advice than you're credited for good outcomes. And if you think of it that way, you know, giving cautious advice can shield you from blame. So you've probably never heard stories about people who are irresponsibly cautious on someone else's behalf. Right, exactly. <laughs> It's true. Well, look, if you if you expect to be held accountable or you want to maintain a good relationship, sometimes it's more important to give cautious advice than it is to give the best advice. Wow, that's kind of which means we are, that's the quality of our advice is lowered in an effort so. to be cautious and protected. That's correct. I mean, that's kind of unintuitive to some people. Some yeah, right. People think, well, you know, careful advice isn't that good advice? Isn't it better to be safe than sorry? But what we're talking about here is overly cautious advice relative to what I would do as an expert myself. So, so if I told you to invest your retirement in a money market fund, or even worse, I just told you to stuff it in your mattress, well, you wouldn't lose anything. Right. Nothing awful would happen. But you'd miss out on years and years of gains that you'd get from, say, investing your money in an index fund that just tracked the stock market. So in the end, you'd be much worse off if you followed that overly careful advice. So true. Um, is it 
And, and then all of a sudden, and, and nobody knows. Nobody knows because I didn't lose all your money. You, you feel, I guess, pretty good, but you only got a 3% return instead of a 10% return. But you didn't even know you could get a 10% return. I mean, it's yeah. it's a game. It really is. I guess that's the downside of all of us that kind of are living more to protect and are more fearful. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's funny. You don't generally think about relationship concerns as a conflict of interest. You know, usually when we say an advisor has a conflict of interest, you think about the simple, like they have a financial interest yeah. in getting you to do something. But, you know, um, trying to maintain a good relationship or trying not to be blamed, right, trying not to be held accountable for a bad thing, is that those are goals that are not always compatible with giving the best advice. Right. right? So, so sometimes it's better to be careful than, than, to be, than to give the best advice you can. So, so almost an anonymous advice might be better, one that's not bound by the relationship, you think? In a way, sure. Uh, you know, I... I kind of jumping the gun a little bit. Yeah. But if we think about um, what you could do to get better advice, right? Right. Um, you know, one thing right off is I think you want to you want to take a lot of these accountable accountability pressures off of the advisor, right? You don't want them to feel t- too pressured or too accountable because then they're not going to want to tell you unfiltered advice, right? They're going to be worried about them giving you advice and it going wrong. Hmm. Yeah. So a lot of, you know, you, you, you might solicit advice and say, well, you know, obviously I, I know this is, you know, I'm going to make my own decision, but I, I just want to know what you think. You sort of take the accountability pressure off of people rather than put it on. Yeah. And I guess as an advisor, you could do the same thing by giving the options. Here are the choices, ramifications for each, but you make the choice. Yeah, exactly. That's that's actually um, – but but if I if I'm going to seek out an advisor, one of the things you're saying I should do is try to put the accountability pressure on me, not on them. But I, I guess that's kind of is that not a psychological uh, factor that I, I'd rather someone else be the fall guy? So I, I might norm I might more normally put the pressure on my advisors that they're going to they're going to take the hit, not me. Yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting way to look at it. Uh, that, that's a good way of framing it. And I, I guess, you know, I, I can't tell you what you should value more, right? If you really put a value on, well, if it goes wrong, it's not my fault. You know? Right. I can, I, I can blame the advisor. Well, then sure, go ahead and do that, right? But yeah. if, if you just want unfiltered, you know, best advice, good information, and then probably you want to take the accountability pressures off. Well, that's good. Uh, let's let's do this, Jason. Let's take a break. Uh, we're speaking with Dr. Jason Dana, Assistant Professor of Management and Marketing at uh, Yale School of Management. We're going to take a break, come back, continue uh, learning some more things we can do that, that might improve, uh, you know, as we're working with an advisor, what can we do to help make sure that the advice we're getting is the best advice, the healthiest advice, good advice, um, one thing we've learned so far, take accountability pressures off the off of the table. Try to try to own your own accountability instead of pushing it onto your advisor. Um, interesting stuff, isn't it? We'll take a break. More on uh, making and, and receiving better advice and getting better advice from those around us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. We'll be right back.
back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Interesting discussion uh, underway here with Dr. Jason Dana, Assistant Professor of Management and Marketing at the Yale School of Management. He's He put together some great research with uh, Dalian Kane, um, and they're talking about why good advice is often bad advice and the difficulty that uh, the, just some of our psychological factors, some of our beliefs, our issues – um, they, they come up in just the simple advising that we do, even as a professional advisor. One of the examples that we gave early on was the fact that um, some OBGYNs would recommend um, maybe an annual mammogram. And yet in their own profession, their own life, they actually get mammograms less often than that. So they they tend to give advice that they themselves don't even live and keep. And so uh, that's some of the interesting research that's come out of this. Um, we appreciate, again, Dr. Jason Dana joining us. Thanks for being back with us. Yeah, thank you. You bet. Talk about um, – because one of the things you gave us before the break was some advice about if we can take the accountability pressure off of the advisor, um, then it, it might free them up to, to be, I guess, a little bit more real or honest in the, in the advice that they're giving. Is that the idea generally? Yes, exactly. Exactly. So that, that's that's one part of the story. Now, there's another part of the story, you know, when it comes to giving and getting good advice that we didn't talk about. And I guess that's just these, uh, like a basic psychological tendency, you can almost call this a cognitive factor, to think differently about risks for other people than you think about them for yourself. Hmm. So uh, I'll explain a little. Uh, my old colleagues at UPenn, Paul Rosen and Ed Roisman, researched something they call simhedonia. And this is a word they made up for the positive emotion you feel at others' good fortune. And I guess what they find across a number of studies is that your sympathy for other people's losses is a much stronger emotion than your pleasure that you feel at other people's gains. And so if you, if you have children, think of it this way, right? Like maybe they want to do something that's fun but a little dangerous. Like, yeah. hey, I want to balance up here. And then you say, uh, you know, maybe balance a little lower down there, right? Wouldn't that be... And, and you may be, you know, acutely aware that you're, you're really feeling their pain and you're very worried about their losses and not so much acutely experiencing, you know, how fun it will be. And oh, wow. the difference in the fun. Yeah. Right? And, and so this is just something we do when we think about other people's risks. We, we can't quite uh, sympathize with their happiness at gains so strongly as we do sympathize with their pain from losing. And, wow. and, and, you know, this is so uncommon to our experience. They had to invent a word for it. Yeah, exactly. We don't have a word. <laughs> so when, when you think about other people, you naturally tend to worry about their possible losses more so than you anticipate joy at their gains. And that leads you again to be biased towards advising caution. Interesting. And, and actually and minimizing good feelings, like the joy of something. I see it in my own work with couples that are struggling in their marriages, um, I, I always, I, I do, I, I want to protect more their pain that they're feeling in the relationship than celebrate the joys that they're having in even a dysfunctional relationship. It's interesting. Wow. Does it, and that's, you're saying just a cognitive kind of factor that each of us, that's just, it's how we kind of value the data. We tend to value the negative data uh, more aggressively and want to fix the negative maybe more than embracing the positive. 
Yeah, I just don't think we're capable of feeling the sympathetic happiness as much as we are feeling the sympathetic pain. Right? I mean, so you see true. someone get hurt, like on on TV or on, you, you know, sometimes you can actually feel it. Right? Yeah. Like, oh. <laughs> you know? Right. Right. And and rarely you get that that experience with happiness too, but it's just not as as potent. Right? Uh-huh. And then we give advice very quickly, like, why are they even doing the show? They look so stupid. But you don't like you don't see that person. I, I always see it on American Idol. <laughs> where you see that person just embarrassing themselves, and you're thinking, "Oh, why are you doing yeah. this?" But you, I guess, yeah, my the other wife literally has to turn off the volume or uh-huh. the channel sometimes when someone's doing something. Exactly, awkward. she can't even look. But, but instead, we should maybe also try to see that this is the this is their 15 minutes there, and they're loving it. I guess up to the point that they get rejected. <laughs> this is a high. There's something exciting for them. Yeah, right, right. And and so when we're advising. As an advisor, we probably ought to make sure we're, we're, I guess, trying to make sure we're cognitively focusing also on what is their real benefit that they're, that they're seeking. Yeah, although, again, I think that's a very, very difficult thing to accomplish. But, yeah. but if you think about this, like another way that you could give and get good advice other than the accountability pressures we talked about earlier you know, if I were asking for advice, maybe I should, instead of saying, what should I do, I might ask, what would you do? Oh, yeah. Right? Because then you're not thinking about the risks vicariously anymore. You're thinking about them personally. You're thinking about you, right? And I can combine that with the accountability. I'm like, yeah, I understand this isn't, you know, what you'd tell me to do, and I'm going to make my own decision. But what would you do? With my given set of circumstances, what would you do? Is that what you mean? Like, cause, well, cause... I, I, I might just ask, what would you do? You know, this is interesting, um, and why people don't use this kind of thinking when they give advice. But, but think about the word majority, right? Uh-huh. By definition, a majority of us are in the majority a majority of the time. Right? <laughs> so, so as a first pass, it's not bad reasoning when you want to think about someone else or what someone else should do to think about yourself and just project that onto someone else. Now, I mean, maybe you have, like, really good reason to believe in a certain situation that you're quite unusual. <laughs> right, which, which we do think, right? Yeah, but we, 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 we think it too often. Yeah. Old advisor Robin Dawes did a lot of research on this, and, and people who don't project in this way, people who predict that others are different than them, tend to be less socially accurate. Right? Because most of the time you're not so different than other people. So, so as a first pass, I know it's a rough cut, but you know you you might think about yourself and project that when giving advice, and that can help you get over some of these biases of only focusing on the negative and not the positive. Yeah, and, that's and fantastic. Turn, I might ask you, what would you do instead of what should I do? Yeah, and I mean, because like you've even done it here on the show, uh, a lot of times thinking about these in very specific situations gives maybe a different answer of advice than if it's a very general concept. Hmm, interesting, like, yeah. Like like even just like being specific and then ask what would you do what would you do in this situation? It's so specific that you might get, you know, something a little more accurate. Hmm. Yeah, at least you're getting something unfiltered. So yeah. you're getting an independent piece of information, and, and presumably that's what you want when you're asking for advice. Someone's had a personal experience you haven't had, or they have some expertise that you don't have. So, you know, it, you want to get that information from them, and you want to get it without all these filters, right? Right. Without, without cognitive biases and without 
concerns for for being cautious not to be blamed and that sort of thing and that's the best way to get information uh, one other thing that you do mention in your article is th- that there are several types of advisors um, and so I guess when we're approaching somebody that's going to give us advice whether it's financial or medical advice is there some background is there some researching I should do about them and their position does should it matter to me um their credentials or their or how they go about making their decisions is there are there some people that have a better style that might fit me better oh that that's interesting i don't i don't know i don't know how you'd know <laughs> yeah uh, i i mean uh trying to think about this carefully um, you, you know, one one thing I guess I would say that 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 relates to that uh, is just not to fall uh, too in love with this idea of really liking your advisor, really feeling compatible, and really placing too much trust in them. So, so one really interesting study by Schwartz, Luce, and Ariely they they studied people, uh, they they tracked people's dental decisions, and people that had been with their dentist the longest actually made more costly and worse medical choices, treatment choices. And the reason being is they don't want to get a second opinion because they they feel like, well, that means I don't trust you or, you know, I'm going to hurt the relationship. So I I don't want to seek a second piece of advice. Interesting. Yeah, no, I've seen that. People, you become so close to them that they feel, you know, if they went to another therapist, if they went to another dentist, that they're like hurting their friendship. Right, and and so then you're bound, right? Yeah, and bound maybe to get bad or more costly dental advice. Yeah. Interesting. So that that is, I guess, why two opinions might be better than one. Right. right. I mean, this is this is one case where you kind of want to reverse everything we've been talking about. You know, if you were considering whether you should get a second opinion, I might then think, what would you tell someone else? Right. Mm. That that might be a time to take the outside view. Well, if it was me, would you tell me to get a second opinion? Such a great question. I mean, a lot of this is, I guess, understanding that there's more going on. There's a psychological side to this, a cognitive side. There's just behavioral theories and histories going on with all of this. There's habits. There's relationships. All of this is compounding in the advice and the advisor or the advice recipient and the advisor role. Yeah, exactly. You know, and and, and a, a less psychologically informed view you know, would say that if someone's giving you biased advice, right, then they just don't have your best interest right. at heart, right? Like maybe they have a financial conflict of interest. So it's kind of like if you don't trust someone's advice or something, it's almost like you're inferring that they're they're not ethical or they're not good. Mm-hmm. And what we're talking about is is how even good people could give bad advice, right? Yeah. We're talking about how someone who's well-intentioned, who does care about you, could still end up giving bad advice. And when you think of it that way, right, it, then seeking a second opinion or wondering whether advice is good is not the same thing as saying, well, that person's, you know, doesn't care or is not trying to give me good advice, right? This is an understanding that we're all prone to doing this. Yeah. And, and that that's that's really important too, just in advising your own children. I mean, you know what I mean? Because a lot of our advice for our children is very biased too. And we love them and we want what's best for them, but it's also sometimes out of fear. You know, we don't yeah. want them to feel pain. 
Yeah. Right. I mean, that's the that's the perfect example of of caring for. I mean, you know, there's not someone for whom you will feel more agency, for whom you will ever try to make the best decisions and give the best advice. But even with children, right, these biases come into play. Yeah. Oh. This is good stuff. Man, where have you been all my life, Jason? This is great. And this we got to get this information out there because it really is. It's not we're not saying people are mean and they're trying to mislead you. I mean, there are a few of those, but the majority are just good people that don't know what they don't know. Exactly. And this is this is a, an approach that I bring into ethics and other people that are doing what we call behavioral ethics do now. Mm. Traditionally, you would you would try to uh, sort out what's right from wrong and teach people what's good and what's bad. And these days we're looking more at what you call ordinary unethical behavior, why even good people can sometimes do bad things, yeah. basically why we all fail to live up sometimes to our own moral standards. Oh, that's huge. And, and again, that's everybody, right? I mean, that's everybody, everybody. Right? So, not the extremes anymore. It's just the common folk now. Right. When we talk about these extreme examples, you know, a lot of people say, well, that's not relevant to me. But I think it's relevant. I think everyone real recognizes that sometimes we're not as good as we want to be. Yeah. We're not as good as we would ideally be. So that's kind of more relevant in all of our lives, understanding the psychology behind why we fail to do what we want to do. Mm. You know, I got to have you back, Jason, because I want to talk more about the ordinary unethical behavior. I'm sure you've got a whole class on that. So um, we'll have to get you back when you're free again down the road. Sure. Anytime. This was a lot of fun. Fun for us too. Jason Dana, Dr. Jason Dana from uh, Yale School of Management. Appreciate you so much. Um, wow. That's cool stuff. Again, and we're, and we're everyone's giving advice all the time, and yet we don't see our own bias. We don't see our own um, fears, our relationship issues that come into play on all of that. We'll take a break, come back, do a quick little Coach's Corner. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, after that great interview with Jason Dana, I probably I just feel like I need to give you some advice. It's going to be good advice, of course. So you ever had somebody say, you know, what do you recommend at the restaurant? What do you recommend here? We were talking earlier about how Donald Trump uh, basically ordered for Chris Christie at a dinner. Basically ordered a mistake. You got to try some of these Trump steaks. And so we I was looking and found this interesting article about uh, from businessinsider.com about just certain things that you, you shouldn't eat ever. And it comes from a, um, a person that spent over 20 years working in food poisoning lawsuits, Bill Marler put together this article, and he has six foods that he simply will not eat anymore. And um, none of them necessarily are like from Chipotle because they keep getting in trouble. Um, check out this list, though. Raw oysters. Just he's not going to do the raw oyster thing. Ben, have you ever had a raw oyster? Oh, he's having one right now. Mm. It Could, sounds good, Ben. Yeah, they're not bad. You really... 
Okay. That's not how you eat an oyster. You just kind of more with the oyster, you just kind of swallow it. You slurp it like that. Yeah. You're chewing it. If you chew it, you're just going to end up chewing it all day. Yeah. Don't eat raw oysters. Marler says that he has seen more foodborne illnesses linked to shellfish in the past five years than in the two preceding decades. And the reason? The culprit? Warming waters. As the global waters are heating up, it's producing microbial growth, which ends up in the raw oyster that uh, you happen to be slurping down. Uh, The second thing he suggests you don't eat, don't eat pre-cut or pre-washed fruits and vegetables. Anything that's pre-washed, pre-cut, careful. You got you got to anything that's been processed, pre-cut, pre-washed, take them out, wash them, do it again. Don't eat raw sprouts, which I couldn't agree more. Why, why is anybody eating sprouts anyway? Actually, I like sprouts, but sprouts, uh, you know, they come with more than thirty bacterial outbreaks, primarily salmonella and E. coli, in the past two decades. Sprouts, you know. They've got some problems. Watch out for rare meat, obviously. That seems like a no-brainer. You know, but if it bleeds, it leads it's to so the hospital. good, though. Do you like raw meat? Not raw meat, but rare. Like rare, rare? Pretty rare. Yeah. Do you know what we call that in my neck of the woods? What? You're a carnivore. I'll accept that. <laughs> Watch out. You got you got to get the heat up 160 degrees to kill the bacteria or you're going to get E coli or salmonella. Uncooked eggs, I wouldn't, you know, don't eat them. Don't do the Rocky Balboa thing. Put it in your smoothie. Buh. Buh. It's a no-brainer. It'll kill you folks. Raw eggs, watch out. Watch out. And watch out for today's trend. There's a big trend about unpasteurized milk and juices. Because many are arguing that pasteurization depletes nutritional value. Yeah. Okay. It also saves your life. It it makes it so your insides don't try to come out on the outside. It keeps your inners on the inners. It's just better for you. There's a reason Louis Pasteur came to this world. One way, One reason is to make sure that you keep your drink down. So don't drink something that isn't pasteurized, for heaven's sakes. We're talking about restaurants, right? If you want to drink raw milk, you know, right out of the cow, at home, you need a life. Not to be rude. You need to do something. Hey, here's another one. Don't eat, don't eat rare pearls. Listen to this story. Out of Issaquah, Washington. I used to live there, you know. Did you? Yeah. They have a really – did you ever go to this Italian restaurant? No. It's I, called Montalcino Ristorante Italiano. No, I, I've never been there. I don't know if that's how you say it, but yeah. that's it, – It sounded right. It sounded like it? a good pronunciation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A woman bit down on a rare pearl while eating a meal of clams the other day at a restaurant. She's eating like a clam sauce probably, some clam and linguine meal. Mm, sounds good. At an Italian restaurant, Lindsay has. Did you know Lindsay? Lindsay and Chris, they live up in Issaquah? No, no. Yeah, they live there. I thought you'd know, just because you live there. It's a big town. 
Uh, they were eating at Montalcino Ristorante Italiano, and recently when she bit into something hard into her entree, Haz says that she wasn't sure what it was, uh, pulled it out, put it in her pocket, and went home to do some research. She took it to a gemologist who determined it was a quahog purple pearl worth about 600 bones. Pretty lucky lady. I mean, sure, it's a molar. Sure, she shattered a molar. But she done found herself a pearl. That's pretty neat. Normally, you'd say, waiter, something crunchy just broke my tooth. But this young lady, smart, smart, she just took it home. She says, and the owner of the Ristorante, Montalcino Ristorante, Cindy Nardone, says she's so happy for Haz. That's great. She should have kept the pearl and then asked for a refund on her meal. Not a bad idea. Just trying to help. Is that how we do it in Issaquah? Yeah. Milk all the money you can. (laughs) She may make it into a necklace, by the way. That is cool. That is great. Something you can't always do when you find something strange in your meal. You know, hey, I found some hair. It's just weird to put hair on a necklace. Make make it into a necklace. No, thanks. I'm going to be in the restroom for a minute. Anyway, we'll take a break, folks. That's hour number two of the show. Stick with us. One more hour of fun intrigue right here on the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Top of the morning to you. Actually, bottom of the morning. For us. For us. It's noon almost elsewhere. Happy lunch. Welcome to March 9th, Panic Day. The day we panic, the day everything falls apart. Also, it's known as the day after Super Tuesday 2. Panic Day. Some people are panicking. Are you just buying into the hype? Is that what the Super Tuesday 2 thing is? Are you kidding me? Are we going to go back to this? We talked about this in the first hour. Yeah. Super Tuesday last week. Yes. Another Tuesday... Not so super, because they keep talking about how this sets up next week. So, Which if would it's be set, Super Tuesday 3. But if it's setting up, then I, I think this is more 1A, 1B. Uh, uh, let me get this straight. Go ahead. Are, are you telling me that the people of Mississippi, hmm. Michigan, Idaho, and the Aloha State, yes. you're telling me they aren't super? Not as super. Right. Super Tuesday 2. Nah. Next week? It might just have been a might just Super be a Tuesday. Tuesday 3. It's like it works. It works for movies. It it sounds like you've been watching cable news and you're buying into their promotion of their own television programs. I have yet to ever hear anybody call this Super Tuesday, Super Tuesday 2, Super Tuesday 3. This is my making. This sound- is I have already yeah. I've all I own that trademark, Super Tuesday 3. Super Tuesday 2. These are mine. So no one called it that? No one has ever called have they, the whole series of Super Tuesdays. Have they tried to that I know make of. it sound like the importance of yesterday now, was... None of this has anything to do with importance. 
Hmm. I never said that. I just think you've been manipulated into thinking that yesterday was Super Tuesday, too. Again, four states felt pretty super yesterday. And some candidates. Donald Trump feels super. He feels super on a daily basis. <laughs> so I, I fact-checked it, and CNN calls it Super Tuesday 2. Oh. No, 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 no. Hold it, hold it. Wow. Okay, go check Super the Tuesday tru- 3. The truth is out. Go check Super Tuesday 3. Check it right now. Check it. You'll see that that trademark is owned by the Townsend But we're, we're discussing two, though. No, I'm t- I just you, did you not just hear what I said? I just said the series. I just I trademarked I know, the series. I, my 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 question mm-hmm. is with Super Tuesday too. Well, no, yeah, whatever. Okay, what's your question? I just don't think it's that super. Uh, anybody own Super Tuesday three? Um, I think the trademarks are going to be filed within the next week. Yeah, by me. I'm just saying I've created a series of supers, Super Tuesdays. Is there any supers after that? I haven't looked that far on the calendar. Okay. I don't need to because I just need to get through three, Super Tuesday three. I think at that point you need to reboot the franchise, right? After three. You never go four. Unless you're like Fast and the Furious, and that's just because two was so bad. No, I might go with a name like a return to Super Tuesday. (laughs) Yeah, you will reboot the franchise. Or will it be a prequel? Yeah, You go back when Donald Trump was like 14. Start the story over. Honestly, I don't know if I'm interested in seeing that. You know what else it is, by the way, which might apply to you right now? Oh, it's called Get Over It Day. See, the day that you get over things that have been bothering you. So take a hike. So take a hike. Really? Just Um, just get over it. mm -hmm. Just get over it. In your expert opinion, is that healthy? Yeah. To just tell someone to get over it? Yeah. All day long, I say that. All right. I mean, I'd play that. I think you'd want more of a discussion, facing the facts more. just seems like you're just dismissing things. No. Ugh. I like it. Take that away from him. He's yeah. going to keep hitting that button. I think you guys forgot whose show this is. <laughs> Sorry. No. Hey, did you hear this crazy I news? do have a responsibility. Yes. How old are you, Ben? I am 21. How old are you, really? 18. Mm. I'd say 30. Ben reminds me of this guy. He's a high school senior from Pennsylvania high, in a Pennsylvania high school who is an honor student and just months from graduation was actually found to be a 23-year-old Ukrainian national. Whoops. Using a false identity after his visa expired. Do you not notice that Ben is fluent in German? Yeah. This is true. It's a true fact. He's not Ukrainian. He is German. And does he look like a 21-year-old to you? No. He's got like I'm 16. He's got so. like a baby face. Total yeah, baby yeah. face. Obvious plastic surgery. Mm. I mean, he's had he, work done. A totally. lift and a tuck. Yeah. I mean, does it look at his face? Mm. Does that look natural? No. Looks like it's something that a doctor did. I bet so. he's a 30-year-old German who's trying to start his life over. It's a great way to do it, I think. This guy went to high school. He was starting over. He was actively involved in school. He's obviously going for a, a scholarship. Is Ben going for a scholarship? Every day. Yeah. Does Ben have – does Ben like – does Ben act like a 21-year-old? No. Like kind of too much like one. But even younger. Yeah. But he dates like a 30-year-old. 
He does. I mean, he doesn't date, but he's like a thirty. But the yeah. ladies like are into him like he's a thirty-year-old, you know, suave, debonair, sophisticated, sophisticated man of the world, man of the world, right? And he speaks German. Hmm. I'm serious. I'm onto this. It's a good ploy. Until you get caught, then you're like, whoa. <laughs> this kid went to Harrisburg High. There, there is an issue. I think he had a girlfriend. Oh, yeah. Oh, see, that's a whole other problem. And he's 23. Yeah. She wasn't anywhere near 23. Well, that's why I think Ben's been – that's why he steers away from dating. Yeah. He doesn't want problems. I don't want any legal problems to happen. But this guy was active in school. He was uh, he was an advisory member on the – like the student advisory group to the food bank. He was in the school's ROTC, a Naval Sea Cadet program. He's – He's he was trying to get into college. Ben's in college. So are you saying that Ben already went through this whole process? I think Ben is a thirty year old trying to act like a twenty one year old. The net's been set. It's too late to stop me. And the funny thing is, what is his motive? Well, know, this he, guy probably just wants a life. Well, this guy was in the ROTC. He might have been trying to infiltrate the military. You don't yeah. know, maybe a sleeper of some kind from some foreign country, whereas Ben, mm. Ben really isn't doing anything. No, but Ben's a sleeper. He sleeps. As far as you guys know. Yeah. Uh, I'm not the, as worried about There's ben. always the possibility that he's really good at hiding his true intentions, but I don't give him no. that much credit. So Maybe Ben's trying to infiltrate the the ice cream industry. Could be. You know, simply that you have no faith in me shows that if I were a German national, I would be succeeding. Hmm. Oh. See, now he's using psychology. Reverse psychology. Don't believe what he's saying. Believe the opposite of what he's saying. Unless that's what he wants you to believe, the opposite. Then it's true. Then then you believe it. See, then it gets confusing. That's why he's a spy. Just go with your gut. He's a spy among us. I don't think he's that complicated of a guy. No, but that's that's what he'd want you to think. Yeah. Right? That's what he's portrayed. Don't you think? Yeah. I mean, look at it. That Look at it. That sounded horrible. Look at him. Look at it. He's. <laughs> does he look like a 21-year-old, just fresh-faced kid? Yes. But have you seen the man walk? Walks like a 38-year-old. He's got 38-year-old knees. With, yeah, bad football soccer knees. Do I walk like a guy with 38-year-old knees? Oh, yeah. Some mornings I do. Mm-hmm. You just drag that leg. That's kind of weird. It's all right. It, it keeps up. That's why the team calls you Frank. <laughs> Is that Frankenstein? Nope. It's Terry walking down the hall. <laughs> oh, mommy. Here, uh, we've got a lot to do today. We are going to be getting into um, – have you ever felt like you need a good cry? Nope. You actually Never. need – you need to cry. A good cleansing cry. We're going to have uh, yeah. a great guest, a contributor on Huffington Post um, that's going to walk us through our emotions, right? We got to – there's a point where you need to walk, pay attention to your emotions and sometimes you just need to – sometimes just cry it out. I haven't seen you cry since – Ever? No, I've seen you cry. I haven't no. seen you cry I haven't since – haven't seen me cry. Well, yeah. I don't cry at work. Yeah, you do. It's like the first rule of work. Don't cry. Or don't let them see you cry. Well, when don't tell me that. When Peyton Manning retired, you were in there crying like a baby. Well, it's sad. I mean, a man who can't throw a football and can't run and has had several mm-hmm. neck surgeries. Yeah, it's his time to retire. But, you know, it's an era gone by. 
Well, and when Don talked to you about you need to record the shows differently, you cried for like two days. Terry? Yo. Just let it out. No, I'm not going to cry. You're not going to make me cry. Remember? You did cry. You cried about a video you were watching. I got a little misty. You were, you, it was a commercial. Yeah, it was like a Kleenex commercial, I think. I, I was misty-eyed. I didn't cry. It's different. What would you call humidity in the eyeball area? Like dust in my eyes. Just something messing with my contacts. Now, Dust in the Wind's another song. Great song, by the way. Dust in your eyes? Mm. I don't cry. <sighs> this will be interesting Terry. to hear the benefits of crying Terry. When, for someone who does not cry. Let it go. Nah. This I, is I, Ben on the pan flute. <laughs> yeah, I show two emotions. Happiness, anger. And intense anger. And that's which, it. which we talked about snapping in snapping. the first hour. And so. I don't snap. I focus it. No. Yeah, you do. I have my outlets. I have different ways that I can get rid of anger. Okay, let it out. Yeah. Let it, we won't make you cry, but we'll let you go in your little my fish booth? tank. My, yeah. my booth next door? Mm-hmm. Okay. We'll call it the cry booth. <laughs> Go to your cry booth. I appreciate uh, that pan flute music by um, Ben. Thanks, Ben. Yep. Uh, uh, he's our 40-year-old intern. It set the mood. Thanks. With uh, facial reconstruction surgery. Is that what we call it? To make him look younger. He's a German insider trying to infiltrate my radio show. But first... Before any infiltration goes on, let's go talk to Terry South, uh, if he can wipe a tear, and let's look at the news. Thanks, Matt. Donald Trump's national lead has dwindled to almost nothing at all, according to a new Wall Street Journal NBC poll out Tuesday. Trump's lead uh, with only 30% likely Republican primary voters nationally. Ted Cruz right on his heels at 27. John Kasich not far behind at 22. And the real story is that Marco Rubio is now last. 10 points behind Trump at 20% overall. Rubio, Amongst Republican voters. He keeps slipping. He's now behind Kasich nationally. You mean little Rubio? Little Rubio, little Marco. The poll also finds that Trump was the preferred pick 36% of Republican primary voters in states that have already voted and 27% in states that have yet to vote. Not sure Mm. what that means, but it seems sad, of course sort of interesting hillary clinton still leads senator bernie sanders nationally a new abc washington post poll out tuesday but the smaller by the smallest margin ever recorded by the poll since the beginning of the campaign season clinton now a mere seven points ahead of bernie sanders 49 to 42 percent among likely democratic voters just a week ahead of the buckeye state ohio march 15th presidential primary otherwise known as super tuesday three if your name is matt townsend senator Trey. Ber- trademark Senator Bernie Sanders filed a lawsuit against the Ohio Secretary of State John Hustle over his decision to not allow 17-year-olds who will be 18 by the time of the general election to vote in the primary. Because the burn likes the young people because they they want what he offers. Sanders alleged that Husted changed the law and that he is arbitrarily discriminating against young black and Latino voters. So we'll see where that goes. Mm-hmm. An ISIS operative interrogated by the U.S. gave intelligence that led to airstrikes on at least two chemical weapons facilities operated by the self-declared Islamic State. The Iraqi man has been detained for about a month, giving the U.S. 
the most in-depth understanding of the terror group's chemical attack abilities to date. The Associated Press calls the strikes the first known major success of the Pentagon's newly aggressive air campaign against ISIS. That's great. And he's not using these horrible techniques that Donald Trump was like, we need to drown him. Yeah, torture. Yeah. Yeah. They talked to the guy. He told them. That's good. We'll see how, how far that goes. An early morning explosion rocked a Seattle neighborhood today, injuring at least nine firefighters and leveling mm. numerous buildings, according to local reports. Officials called the event a massive explosion, and one witness told reporters that a local coffee shop, restaurant, and grocery store were all destroyed. A natural gas leak is suspected. The windows are blown out for a half a block on all sides. So it was a huge explosion. It was extremely loud. It was out of control. These are all quotes from witnesses. It was the craziest thing I've ever seen. And one neighbor said, I looked out the window and my neighborhood had exploded. Wow. Can you imagine that? But we've seen this where um, a building, natural yeah. gas goes up. It'll just level I know. whatever's it, in the, the it close happened here. proximity. It destroyed my favorite restaurant. Joanna, Johanna's, Joanna's. Right. It was, it was tragic. Yeah. They're I deep. haven't had a breakfast since then. So this entire neighborhood in Seattle uh, has uh. been hit by this. Uh, remember uh, Deflategate? Yes. With Tom Brady. Yes. The Super Bowl. Uh-huh. It was the, uh, the AFC Patriots, title game. The Patriots stole the game yeah. by deflating the footballs. So a Massachusetts seventh grader may have just proven Tom Brady's innocence. Oh. <gasps> This elementary school uh, student, Ben Goodell, no, no relation to NFL commissioner uh-huh. Roger Goodell. Right. Uh, he won his second straight science fair with a football PSI experiment, Sports Illustrated reports. Goodell's Deflategate project requires taking properly inflated footballs and exposing them to different weather conditions such as snow, wind chill, humi- humidity, cold, and ice. Every time when, when the football is cold, the PSI drops. The lowest PSI recorded during Deflategate was two PSI under proper inflation. Mm-hmm. That would take what temperature? He goes, I had the football at proper inflation when I started. He said, indeed, his whole point was to prove Tom Brady was not guilty in this case. So the idea was the football mm-hmm. game right. in question, it was really cold. The footballs were examined after they'd been outside. Yeah. They didn't test them before. Right. They tested them after and the footballs were under the designated uh PSI level. Sure. So what they're saying is all these scientists have come out since then saying the PSI will drop mm-hmm. in cold weather. Same reason why the air pressure in your tires drop when it gets cold. Oh, is that why? But the NFL charges full ahead to go after Tom Brady and try to uh, yeah. get him suspended and fine him and all this stuff. And so there's this huge fight back and mm-hmm. forth over something that a lot of people, scientists, and now this kid with his We would like to call the seventh grader to the stand. Right. Uh, Timmy... And in the face of the facts, the NFL is still driving ahead to get the Patriots on this because they cheated. Yeah. They, so, did. they did cheat. It is interesting. You know, it's all good. Cheaters sometimes prosper. I just saw that on a bumper sticker. This is the show where we give you the information you need and some that you don't need. Some information we, we just give you. Hey, we will take a break when we come back. Uh, We're going to be talking about emotions and your emotions. You know, there's a time you might need to cry, but it it might be just really valuable to understand where where your emotions come from and why they linger and, and how to kind of handle your emotions in a healthier way. Stick with us, folks. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back.
everybody to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, sometimes you just need a good cry. Other times you're just mad. Your emotions take so many different, uh, you know, pathways to get through your body and out of your body. But your emotions are teaching you something. They're telling you something. Whether it's whether it's crying and uh, you know your need to cry every once in a while and get those feelings out, or just dealing with your fears, dealing with uh, what's going on inside of you, we wanted to bring in an expert that could help all of us to better uh, manage and look at our emotions. Um, Aleka Torvalson is joining us. She is um, a, a, a contributor to the Huffington Post and a professionally certified and credentialed life strategies coach. And uh, she is helping us to understand our emotions. Aleka, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I look forward to being here. You bet. Great to have you. And, I mean, emotions, they're, they're there for a reason, right? They're, they're, they're a guide. They're, they're teaching us how to handle ourselves, aren't they? Yeah. You know, it's funny because we have these things called feelings all the time. <laughs> Don't make day, me think day. about it. Yeah. Yeah. And we, we do. And so... But what are they, you know, these things that we call feelings, and do they actually have a purpose? And when I ask uh, my clients or groups or certainly myself, you know, way many years ago, I, I knew I had feelings. I could name the feelings, but I didn't quite know what to do with them. Yeah. You know, and so I think many of us may not have a clear sense of maybe what we're feeling, but if we've gotten that far... Um, how how we deal with these feelings and how these feelings can actually be really useful, even those so-called, and I'm using air quotes, bad feelings like shame, jealousy, anger, anxiety, even boredom, you know, those those negative feelings, those too can actually be useful. Well, and, and I guess that's the key is we might think that uh, we don't want to deal with the feelings. Some of us actually not me, but some think that they that feelings don't matter. They can actually cut them out of their life, but you can't, right? Because feelings are so deeply connected to your thinking. It's true. Conscious I mean, or I, subconscious, right? It, absolutely. And I think you, you could. I like to say, you know, you, you can make that choice to sort sure. of live in that logical mind, but you would be living with half your compass. You know, it's, it's not necessarily to your benefit because the feelings give us really important information about our life, if we're living without that sense, then we're sort of living uh, with, with half our, our, our direction. Hmm. And, yeah. And, yeah. So, and you, so, yeah, you'd have half of the experience of life. Yeah. And so it's really important to ask ourselves the why, you know, why perhaps we have feelings. And there's many, many, um, you know, theories about where they come from and what they are. But for me, you know, in working with my clients and perhaps myself, I like to think about what are the gift of feelings? How can we use them? Hmm. What are they here to tell us? And I think they're really here to give us very um, important information. I like to think of feelings as the barometers of our inner weather. You, you know, much like we have our, our physical senses can kind of tell us information about our external environment, feelings give us really important information about our inner world our psyche, and as you said, our conscious and subconscious mind, our thinking, even our past, hmm. present, and future. Is Because um, I'm assuming some of our feelings, we may not actually have a direct thought like in our consciousness, but we can still have a feeling. Like you might wake up. It seems like, like I've walked into a room before mm -hmm. and felt like something's weird. <laughs> and I don't even know 
I just feel it. Something strange, and I don't – but it's not connected to a thought yet. So I guess there's preconscious feelings, right? And and then is it – does the feeling proceed? Then I make up the thought about it? Right. Or – or the egg. Or is yeah. it the other way around? Yeah. It's a good question and one that experts are really trying to wrestle with. I don't think anyone has a clear direction um, or decisive theory about what it is. The, the latest research that I've really studied has been you actually do have a thought, even though it's subconscious, mm. which creates the feeling. Because you even said in your example, there's something that feels weird here. Yeah. You know, and then you had the feeling. And sometimes it happens, though, you know, that stimulus and response happens so quickly that we're not able to differentiate that we had a thought. We just understand we had a thought by the feeling. Yeah. You know, is, so sometimes it's a really great way to ask ourselves, what was, what was I thinking right before I had that thought? I mean, and the feelings. Before I had that feeling. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, so that's, I guess, the benefit of being a human being is you could sit down after you've been through an, an episode or something that really stirred up your feelings and, and start asking yourself questions about what was going on there. What was I thinking? How long mm-hmm. have I felt that way? Absolutely. You know, and, and the other thing that feelings can do is they can help us in the moment. You know, for example, if you can kind of for a moment, you know, track how these feelings feel in your body, like anger, anger, the feeling of anger feels very different in your body than, like, say, sadness. Mm. You know, for me, when I feel anger, I feel it in my chest. You know, it's like it feels warm. And I'm, as I'm sitting in my chair now, I'm sitting up straighter. You know, and I, I feel that my energy wants to move out. Whereas sadness, you feel it more, at least I do, you know, f- you can feel it within yourself. Everyone is unique. It, but I feel it more in my solar plexus. Hmm. And it makes me feel almost cold. And I, I feel myself kind of wanting to curl up. Yeah. You know, and so anger is telling us a few different things. If we could say, what is the gift of anger? So when we feel angry, that inner sentry or that inner warrior has been awakened, and it says boundaries. Someone has violated a boundary, or we need to set a boundary, or maybe someone has called us on something, and they're right, and there's an inner boundary that we have that needs to be attended to. Mm. Right? So, that, so that is the, that's why it's a gift. It angers. Yeah. It's not just trying to beat you down. It is no. trying to help you, protect you. Absolutely. I mean, think of those times that uh, one of the things I often say is the gift of anger is clarity. You know, because if you're in high anger, right, and we can talk about what that means, high anger versus low anger. If you're in high anger, you're actually very clear. Mm. You know, like I'm holding up my finger saying, "Uh uh-uh, no, no Mm. more, you know. Yeah. Um, And that then, if you think about kind of how energy, the energy of anger feels, we have the energy. We have the voice. We have the assertion. We feel like we need to say something. Yeah. Whereas sadness tells us the gift of sadness is release and letting go. And it says you're needing to let go of something to make room for something else. You know, And um, when we feel that, when we can name what it is we're releasing, it helps us move through and how to use that feeling. Because one of the things about feelings is once you're able to use it and get the wisdom it's giving you, it can diminish and go away. Mm-hmm. Right? It's giving you the answer. It's giving you the, that nugget of truth. And then you can actually take that energy and move forward, energy in motion. Right? Use it to make a change. And then um, that, that message has been gifted to you so it can travel on. 
Wow. And that's, I mean, that's a whole different way, like seeing all of these emotions. So I guess every emotion then brings some gift to us, some Absolutely. opportunity. Yeah. Wow. Let's let's take a break. I want to come back. What are some more sure. what are some more gifts of the emotions? Some more we could talk about um certainly some some of the other gifts, perhaps fear. Yeah. And that would that's a big one. Okay, let's let's do that. We'll take a break, come back, continue this discussion. Folks, this is I mean this is your this is your body communicating to you and giving you an opportunity to uh to change, to take advantage of life and uh and move on. We'll come back. More with Alika Torvalson in just a minute, folks. Stick with us. Well, this is the Matt Townsend Show. back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, when you, whether you feel fear or angry, sadness, these emotions, these feelings, totally normal, folks. And uh, you can avoid them if you want to, or you can let them be your guide, your teacher. And Alika Torvalson is joining us. She is a, uh, a Huffington Post contributor and a professionally certified uh, life strategies coach. And um, also has a website if you go to alikasky.com. AlikaSky.com. You can find out more about the great work that she's doing there. Alika, welcome back to the show. Thank you. This is a uh, this topic is. I love the idea of framing it as a gift because Mm -hmm. if it's a negative feeling, a lot of us avoid it. We want to run from it. But you're saying no. Learn the lesson and see the gift that it'll bring to you. For example, the gift of anger brings clarity. Of, of information and emotion. Mm-hmm. Uh, you also then talked about the gift of sadness is the gift to let something go. Yeah, absolutely. And remembering that every ending is a beginning, hmm. you know, and, and that's, um, that, that's a great thing to remember because those are those feelings that don't always feel so good. Yeah. You know, and because we're, we, we tend to, you know, we, we, we get pretty good at blocking them, um, numbing them, ignoring them, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. doing other things, so we don't, or shaming them, so we don't feel them. And really, when we're at, when we are able to do that, we really turn up the volume on our whole lives in a really important way. It's we do. We spend a lot of time. In fact, a lot of the problems of this country in health, um, mm-hmm. and and even just in social issues, tends to be people trying to avoid these feelings, mask these feelings, medicate themselves for these feelings. You know, it's it really mm-hmm. instead of just letting them in and letting them teach. Yeah, you know, and I think you know I, I understand that because we're we can live in kind of a left brain culture. You know, where our our logical mind is an awesome thing. I don't want to diminish that. Um, I think that that logical part of us gives us incredibly helpful and useful information. It's great at analyzing data and organizing and doing our taxes, and we all need to drive on the, on the correct sides of the, the street, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, we need that structure and order. But our, our logical mind only can answer certain questions. And questions that I get in my practice, and certainly ones that I have around love and purpose and healing and, you know, mysticism and, and inspiration and um, spirituality, these are not linear logical concepts. 
Mm-hmm. So we have to utilize another layer of ourselves, perhaps rather than the head. Maybe we have to drop into the heart. So rather than logic or reason, uh, we need to access intuition, feeling, right? Yeah. And, and that is that important piece. So our, I like to say our EQ, our emotional intelligence, is just as important, maybe depending on the question, more important than our logical mind yeah. because it answers questions our logical mind can't. Is, um, and so much of this is kind of our wiring, right? So you have to understand this to understand yourself or you can't, I would assume, believe to reach a higher level. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, kind of going into this unknown terrain of what does that feeling mean is really important to, to really understanding our whole selves. Yeah. You know, all those parts of us, the, the parts that are really conscious and easy to see, and maybe those those parts of us that we might have shadowed or edited in some way. Hmm. What What yeah. would you say is the gift behind fear? Yeah, that's a big one, right? Because yeah. I, <laughs> none of us like to be un, have that space of uncertainty in our lives. You know, that, that's, a, that's a scary place to be. And when we talk about fear, we could do a whole segment on just fear alone because there's many layers to that. We're not necessarily talking about that instinctive survival fear that shows up out of the blue. Mm-hmm. The, the, that is to keep you safe. In fact, all fear is wired into that part of our brain that's deeply, deeply um, in that reptilian part of us that says, keep the organism alive, mm. keep, this, you know, keep this person um, well. And because of that, the, our fear tends to want to keep us safe. This is the thing, though. When we're talking about not a survival kind of situation, maybe we're talking about wanting to give a speech or get that promotion or do something that's out of our comfort zone, we're going to feel afraid. You know, so I like to think that fear is just that little reminder that we're, we're stepping over or moving into a new phase of our comfort zone. We're expanding into a new place. Hmm. So for me, when I feel fear, and for my clients, we really talk about, could you feel the fear and then kind of look at the story that's coming up around that? Because usually once we get to the, um, the edge of our comfort zone, the fear loves to be sort of partnered with the inner critic, you know, that tells us, no, you can't do that. You're no good at that. That won't make you any money. You know, yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah. So fear, when we, we start working with our fear, we can start saying, oh, all that it's doing is telling me that, you know, I'm not going to be able to do this or I can't do this. But I actually want to take this step and move into this new terrain. Yeah. So it's, feeling that fear and doing it anyway, you know, it's yeah. sort of an old saying. But I think it's really important to work with our fear because if we're going to do anything as far as growing and evolving, we need to get up close and personal with fear. And if, yeah, if you could, if you could understand that this may be a stepping stone to, you know, my self-limiting beliefs or whatever, yeah. then all of a sudden, you know, take on that fear and you've, you've just expanded your comfort zone. Exactly. Maybe there's actually nothing really to fear except being in that same place. That's interesting. That's great. Yeah. we got about so a minute a left. thing to work with. Uh, Alika, talk to us just in, in a minute. What would you say is the one thing we could all remember if we would just keep this idea top of mind it's, it really is one of the greatest, great tools to help us manage our emotions and understand our emotions. Sure. The only, the only other little piece I might offer is that 
you know, we talked in the beginning here about sometimes our feelings can give us information about the past. Yeah. And we're working with our feelings. One thing I often want to tell people is make sure that in work with identifying, is that feeling you're feeling actually about right now? Mm. Or is this something that's triggered sort of this, you know, luggage perhaps or bag of emotions that you've been carrying up until now? For example, you know, if you're driving down the street and someone cuts you off and you're a little bit annoyed and you're angry, okay, some anger, some clarity saying someone has violated a boundary, it's, it's it's a bummer, you know? Yeah. But if you're driving down the street and someone cuts you off and all of a sudden you feel enraged, perhaps that there's anger there that's about a boundary that you needed to set 10 years ago. Yeah, no, you know, totally. Or part of you that is being triggered in that moment. So a lot of times working with feelings, one of the things we want to do is make sure, what is this feeling really about? Is it about now? You know, if you're mad at your husband for coming home late and you're irate, is it about now or the times that you were abandoned years ago? Yeah, that is so big. To do with this person, right, exactly. You know? So we're, that's, that's the one thing I will say. So working with feelings, we, they're always real, yep. but they're not always true to the moment. We have to decipher that. Mm, that's huge information. Huge. Well, we appreciate it. That, Alika, incredible uh, insight there. And we, we, if anybody, if you want to go find out more about Alika, her coaching, and her great work, go to her website. Uh, alikasky.com, A-L-E-K-A sky.com, uh, and her name is Alika Torvalson. We appreciate you, and thank you for the great insight. We'll take a break, come back, and go visit our good buddies who are completely in charge of their emotions, especially after BYU's uh, loss and even the women lost last night as well. Um, interesting uh, dynamic going on here at BYU Sports. Stick with us. Our friends from BYU Sports Nation will be joining us next. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. This just in, uh, we we are not going to be going to BYU Sports Nation. They are wrapping up their show down there, and they have to pre-record it and so they can get on the road. They've got to get their truck, their motorhome, their U-Hauls. They've got to get their makeup, all of their TV, uh, their apparel. Uh, they've got four different, you know, makeup artists they've got to get. It's It's a show, folks. So they're not going to be able to be with us. But do not panic because today is panic day. It is the day to let rip and succumb to the terror, giving free reign to much of the suppressed emotions. So we should let people panic. Panic away. I'm already panicking. This is me panicking. Flap your arms, scream, run around in circles. You know what? It's panic day. It also... Amazingly happens to be Get Over It Day with its favorite anthem. I might have to take that away from you again. It's one of my favorite buttons. There's only uh, there's only a few other buttons that I like to push. This is one of them. And because we couldn't have BYU Sports Nation, we wanted Jerem to play a little sax for us. And Spencer, if he were here... He would probably do an impersonation of Donald Trump. I would win an election in the Vatican. (laughs) Oh, they're good. And then again, Jerem. 
because you wouldn't be able to stop him. You know what? It's just, it's as if they don't even need to be here because we have all the buttons. We have it. See, it's almost like we just, like we just did the segment. Let's go home. Wrap it up. It seems different without them here. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's like we're filling up time. We're not filling up time. I got nothing but time. So what I like to do when I've got nothing but time is uh, I got to tell you a few things, a few stories here. One is there's a bridge in Uruguay. I think that's the proper way to pronounce it, in Uruguay. It's a circular bridge. It is so cool. Um, It's a bridge right by the ocean, and it just – it kind of – it just – it's weird because they designed it in a ring shape. So when you're going – you know, when you're driving, you would just – instead of having a straight bridge, they wanted everybody to look out at the ocean because it's the most beautiful surroundings ever. So they made a big loop where you kind of have to go out of your way in a circular motion to get across the bridge. And it gives you a beautiful vista. Problem is, now you're nauseous. <laughs> the bridge, it's really cool that we're trying to find better ways to get across a, a bridge instead of just making it straight. Let's enjoy the scenery. They also had to make it so you just couldn't keep going around in a circle on the bridge because, you know, people would die. Like, this is the longest bridge in the world. So they made it so you can't just keep going in circles. I thought that was cool. They're trying to help us, you know, smell the roses and look at the ocean. Have a better view. Uh, interesting thing. Um, this is really important. When when I talk about the criminal element, uh, as you know on the show, we like to elevate everybody, not just those that are the non-criminals. A little obvious uh, advice here, but um, a Canadian man has been banned from owning turtles. He is not allowed to own a turtle. It seems, sure, harsh. Uh, It's a harsh penalty. But it makes sense when you realize that this is the man that we've talked about on the show before who tried to smuggle 38 turtles in his pants. Right? You you don't do that. Ow! It's bad for the turtle. It's bad for your pants. And it's bad for you. So this this Canadian man has been banned from owning such reptiles for 10 years. That'll teach you. According to Canada's Environment Department, Dong Yan of Windsor, Ontario, had tried to bring turtles, these cute little turtles, from the United States uh, into the southern part of the province. The turtles were contained in plastic bags and taped to the leg of Mr. Yan's, uh, I guess, to his legs. Ouch. Are turtles amphibians or reptiles? I have no idea. This said reptiles. Okay. Um, 
The neat thing is if he like happened to like fall in the water, you know, he's covered. Literally in turtles. <laughs> I'm hoping they'd swim him to shore. The turtles were contained in these plastic bags then taped to his legs. The environment and climate change uh environment and climate change Canada said in a statement on Thursday, Yan was convicted on February 17th after he was caught during an inspection. Hey, get over here. Frisk him, Larry. <laughs> He's just got bumps all over his legs. Yan uh, has been set with probation for two years and a $2,600 fine. He was also sentenced to 50 hours of community service and must notify the Environment Department of International Travel. I guess any time he's going to leave the country. He's also not allowed to eat any turtle meat. Hmm. That's a shame. It's a horrible shame. But he deserves it. You don't try to smuggle turtles. Instead, what you do, you got to be smarter like my next. Bad boys, bad boys. What's he going to do? This guy reminded me of you, Ben. He's a Virginia man, disguised himself as a Walmart employee to steal TVs from Walmart. Like, I, every time I walk by you in, and you're in the, what do we call that room where, the, where you all work? The, the common the, area? The dog pound. No, the, the common area. The common area of the workers, the working class. The united order of the wor- <laughs> working man. But every time I walk by, you're always looking at people of Walmart. Videos. Yeah. And so this guy, after watching probably hours of people of Walmart video, decided that he would dress up in a blue Walmart vest and a gray hooded sweatshirt. And he entered the stockroom and loaded merchandise onto a cart. He loaded four flat screen televisions onto a cart and pushed them out of the store through the emergency exit. It's a perfect crime. They were loaded into a waiting full size SUV. Unfortunately, the man was not an employee of Walmart or of any neighboring Walmart stores. He was a Walmart impersonator. But see, the the thing is, people avoid Walmart employees. Do they? Perfect crime. I do. Why do you? Because they're scary. You're you're afraid of the greeter at a Walmart. Welcome to Walmart. They say. What's you know why they do that? Why? So that you know they're keeping your eye, their eyes on you. It's an 80-year-old woman sitting in a chair. You're afraid of her and her eyes? I, I'm just saying I don't underestimate anybody. That's crazy. She could kill me. But they did take a picture. Did you, hear, did you see the picture on the internet? No, I didn't. It's just it's a guy in a, a hoodie with a blue vest. He's got a really big, round, yellow head and just a, a cheesy smile a grin. A huge smile. Yeah. 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 Anyway, be on the lookout for him. He's about 5'10". Yellow man in his early 20s. Without he's, legs. I mean, he's, just, he's, he's all head. He's all head. Yeah, he, he makes a lot of stickers of, of himself. He's put them yeah, all over Walmart. It's like a deal. He's a yeah. deal. He's the deal guy. Yeah. He got a deal. He got four televisions. That's a pretty good deal. 
It's a small, weird world we live in, folks. Crazy world, to be honest with you. And again, today, just one of the little things we learned about our, you know, our show is that Ben, we are now convinced, is a 30 to 40-year-old male from Germany who's impersonating being a 21-year-old. And what's my motive again? You're trying to infiltrate uh, Brigham Young University. Okay. And the corrals where we hold our – where we have our wonderful producers. Observe the environment. Mm-hmm. You're right. Spy. There's a spy among us. Right here. Hey, our hero of the day. You know, we always like to end with a hero story. It's two volunteers that you may have heard their story before. They're two volunteer firefighters in Virginia who decided to break the rules and rush an 18-month-old girl to the hospital in their fire engine instead of potentially watching her die um, you know, because of her, her injuries. The fire chief of Stafford County says Captain James Kelly and Sergeant Virgil Bloom, who were both placed on administrative leave after the February 27th incident, they basically uh, have both been reinstated, folks. They both are back on, the, on, the, on their truck. Uh, the chief says the firefighters' actions had been under review because the girl was transported in a fire truck, not an ambulance. This was a highly unusual occurrence for our department, and as we do in situations that appear to veer from our established practice, we initiated a review. See how formal that statement was? But when Kelly and Bloom arrived at the scene in Fredericksburg, the girl who had suffered a seizure had turned blue and was unresponsive. The firefighters decided to use their vehicle because they thought the nearest medic was about 15 minutes away. Their reinstatement followed a nationwide outpouring of support. The girl's father, Brian Nunemaker, says he was appalled when he heard about their suspension. The AP reports, the actions of these men represent a dedication to their mission and a deep concern of doing what is best for the people they are serving, he said in the statement. So they're the heroes of the day, Captain James Kelly and Sergeant Virgil Bloom. Thanks for thinking out of the box and uh, stepping up, just doing what's right. Sure, you took some heat, but, you know, as it does most of the time, uh, truth will prevail and uh, you'll be taken care of by a lot of good, honest, decent people. Folks, that's the show. Remember, we can't do it without you. We'll be back again tomorrow um, doing it all again, 9 a.m. to noon Eastern time. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Until tomorrow, take care of each other. We'll be back again tomorrow.